thank you. Fingers under the title of the story. Get ready. The pet goat. Yes, the pet goat. Fingers under the first word of the story. Get ready to read the story the fast way. Get ready. As one of the most seismic moments in American history was unfolding, the president was in the most unlikely of settings. Moments before entering that Florida classroom, he'd been told a small plane had hit the first tower. The president, the principal, and I all had the same reaction. Oh, what a horrible accident. The pilot must have had a heart attack or something. For his chief of staff, the picture soon changed. Captain Lauer came back up to me and said, oh my God, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. And I knew that this was not a coincidence. It wasn't an accident. And so I decided to pass on two facts and make one editorial comment to the president and to do nothing to invite a dialogue with him. I thought about what I would say. I opened the door to the room, came in. That's when I walked up to the president and I leaned over and I whispered into his right ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. At the first emperor's tomb, the Chinese People's Republic shows you a preliminary movie in which this monument of empire is seen through the eyes of peasants who rose up in rebellion and smashed the terracotta statues. We have come so far to see. I had a dream about this place. stories for the end of the world. We are now here, friends. This is the end of the octopus. Now, originally, I was thinking that it made sense to do this as two episodes, but in working on them, it became impossible to disentangle the various threads. So what the hell? Now, this is the closest that we are ever going to get to a 9-11 truther episode. And 9-11 is mostly going to happen off screen tonight, so to speak. I mean, we're not going to be getting into like the mechanics of the attacks themselves. Um, I'm not particularly interested in, you know, thermite and controlled demolition and all the rest of it. Um, so what I'll say up front is I am a let it happen on purpose kind of guy. That's where I come from. Now, I am aware of all the different theories about how the attacks were carried out. I know that there's some passionate debate around all that stuff. But for me, it doesn't really matter how it was done because once those towers were rubble, you know, 
the US security state and its allies had a blank check to remake the world as they saw fit, you know, particularly the uh, the Middle East. Now, I think it's arguable whether or not they, the architects of 9-11, ever really achieved this project that they had for a new American century. Um, because, I mean, it does seem like US power is declining and it's declining at an accelerating rate as we move deeper into the 21st century. But, you know, I never count them out. Um, but I do think that not so much 9-11, but the, the years immediately following it, the war on terror and so on, it speaks to a ridiculous amount of hubris uh, that they had after the Cold War, and it led to massive overreach. You know, but for all that, they still achieved plenty of their objectives after 9-11. So, yeah, we're going to be hopping here, there, and everywhere tonight. And if it feels a little disorienting, and fractured, then just roll with it, to be honest. Um, a big theme of the back half of this series has turned out to be disintegration. And there are a few subjects that embody that as well as this one. And we aren't covering 9-11 just for the sake of it, you know, just as like a checklist exercise before we leave America behind for a bit. Um, I did actually try really hard to avoid this topic, but ultimately... It's impossible because all roads in this story lead there. And it's with this in mind that I want to ask the question one last time, which is what is the octopus? What is this thing that Danny Casolaro and God knows how many other people were killed for investigating? Now, according to Bill Hamilton, Danny envisioned the octopus syndicate as having two levels of power. And this is from Ken Thomas, quote, He deemed the first level operatives to be Richard Helms, George Pender, John Philip Nichols, and Ray Klein. The second level included Robert Chasen, E. Howard Hunt, Edwin Wilson, Thomas Kleins, and Ted Shackley. Now, these are all names that we've discussed at length during our time covering American history. I mean, we'll remember that Danny told Bill Hamilton he'd identified Pender as being the head of this syndicate. He viewed it as a globe-straddling crime group composed of eight intelligence-connected operatives who'd been secretly manipulating world history since the end of World War II. This has shades of Ted Shackley's secret team, and we are going to be circling back to him in a moment. But if we grant that Danny was right, and these guys were all secretly mobbed in with each other, and, you know, even worked closely and frequently enough with each other to be considered an organization, then the question is, where exactly did it sit in the parapolitical hierarchy, you know? Now, Danny had them close to, if not right at the very top, and in drafts of his manuscript, he reckoned they usually operated in groups of two or three all the time, but they would rise from the seafloor, as he put it, as one cohesive unit during especially acute moments of crisis. So think the Bay of Pigs, running guns to Albania just after World War II, Watergate, Dallas, the Iranian Revolution, the October Surprise, and so on. Now, it's entirely possible his conception of the octopus would have changed as he moved deeper into his research. And he frequently, you know, swapped out members of the syndicate depending on where he was at in his process. 
So it's for these reasons that I'm not really interested in dismantling his theory in granular detail. I mean, I think it's fairly clear what Benghazi and I think about it, like, you know, from the last few episodes. But as we said before, Danny was a very typical mid-century American, and his politics tended towards liberal, but of course they were shot through with uh, quite a hard streak of anti-communism and these odd outbursts of right-wing paranoia. So, for example, he believed the Octopus Syndicate had intervened in the Bay of Pigs on Cuba's behalf. And this was because they had a secret loyalty to the KGB, which is, in his telling, why they protected Kim Philby for so long. And, you know, stuff like this that makes you raise an eyebrow and ask some questions here about what the motivation actually was behind Danny's work. Um, And we also can't forget that right from the beginning of his investigation, he was being influenced by LaRouche operatives, you know, people like Jeff Steinberg. And they had their own murky reasons for pointing him towards certain periods of intrigue and away from others. So let's just accept, for the sake of argument, that he was broadly correct, that something like an octopus group existed. So what was it? Now to me, in all the work that we've done on this, all the you know hours of research and reading, it seems to me like if it did exist, it was just another example of the kind of ad hoc network of relationships that forms all the time in that gray area between intelligence operations, politics, business, and crime. Now, we talk a lot about the Yankees and the Cowboys, and that's because that um, theory helpfully illustrates how corrupt practices in the ruling class are enabled by networks of factions very much like the octopus, you know. They operate somewhat autonomously, and then they link with others when it's necessary. And when these networks collude or when they come into conflict with one another, they generate what we call deep events. So the Yankee and the Cowboy example, that helps us see how both groups' economic and political objectives, they largely align, if truth be told. And so the conflicts, when they do develop, they tend to emerge from disagreements over how to achieve shared objectives, you know. Now, the ejection of um, Boris Johnson, funnily enough, from Downing Street recently, that is a very good example of a way that conflicts inside the ruling class are settled, you know, on the surface. They strapped that doofus to a rocket. That guy had sponsors, you know, and he was sold to the public as this buffoonish everyman Tory, you know. Um, And this is despite the fact that his middle name is Pfeffel, And then once he'd outlived his usefulness, they strategically fed choice selections of dirt from what I imagine is a very considerable blackmail vault on him. And they fed this to their media outriders, and then they engineered his downfall. So if we take, uh, and by they, sorry, I mean, you know, uh, factions and networks inside the British establishment. So anyway, yeah, if we take Danny's membership list of the octopus, at face value, and we agree, again, for the sake of argument, that his version of the octopus existed, I'm comfortable saying 
it was just another underworld network. It was one of God knows how many produced by the economic and political system as it developed after World War II, you know. But it was building off long-standing practices of secrecy and corruption in elite circles. Now, to take a kind of Martian view from above, we can understand that the octopus is just part of the same broad matrix of corruption that encompasses Dallas and Watergate and Condor and Gladio and Iran-Contra and so on. But I think it's inaccurate to give the octopus group nearly, you know, omnipotent power over these events. The group of factions that were behind the election of Reagan um, and Iran-Contra, of which we could grant this octopus syndicate was a part, that is just the same massive network that returned to the White House off the back of that Stalin election in 2000. Yeah. And you can, of course, argue that that network never really left, given the significant overlap that existed between the Bush and Clinton uh, machines, as we have talked about in the last couple of episodes. So yeah, a few players here and there change, but that class remains, uh, and its tentacles extend everywhere. But Danny was so narrowly focused on the octopus concept that he didn't really grasp this notion of interlocking factions and operational overlap. This guy had no real class analysis, basically. And there is a reason to think that the octopus, if it existed the way Danny described it, it may have been relatively influential when we consider the presence of, you know, Ted Shackley in Danny's list of names. The other guys are eyebrow-raising enough, but Shackley is of particular interest for us tonight because by looking at just a few of his ventures we can illustrate how the story is actually much bigger than just eight guys. Shackley has haunted this entire series. I mean, it was through running the JM Wave anti-Castro operations in the 60s that he became a major figure in JFK assassination law. And you'll find him somewhere in the picture with almost every major scandal or intelligence controversy thereafter. You have a guy called Bradley Ayres, who was a farmer paratrooper who was kicked out of the army in the 60s because he opposed uh, the Vietnam War. He named Shackley as one of nine key CIA operatives who had knowledge of how the JFK hit was actually planned and executed. Now, JM Wave is how Shackley came to partner with Thomas Kleins, Edwin Wilson, and a few of the other alleged octopus members through Operation 40. And a cursory scan at the list of names connected to that, I think we discussed Operation 40 in the Nixon episode towards the end of like 2021 or so. Yeah, a cursory scan at the list of names connected to that will put Shackley in proximity to Felix uh, Rodriguez, Barry Seal, Nixon himself, Porter Goss, Orlando Bosch. It's a who's who of deep operators, you know. Now remember Porter Goss as well, because we're coming back to him. So Kleins and Shackley managed the secret war in Laos. These were the destabilization operations in Chile as well, uh, designed to overthrow Allende. They were also overseeing the dope that was being run out of the Golden Triangle. And then after this, Shackley became one of Poppy Bush's key guys when uh, Poppy became CIA director. 
Now, Poppy, I'd say, um, there's no secret, I, I think this, he is the closest thing to a capo mafia that the secret state had, you know, up to the election of his son, at least. Now, Shackley was an ace logistics man. Uh, he helped set up untold numbers of gun smuggling networks with Edwin Wilson, which included the Arms for Libya scheme. He worked with Bush to privatize US intelligence so that the agency could dodge congressional scrutiny. And he also helped further develop and refine the money laundering schemes that the agency relied on to finance its off-the-books activities. So think Nugan Handbank and front companies we've discussed before as well, like uh, CFSF Investments and Lake Resources. He set up dozens, if not hundreds of shell companies and fronts. And by the time Iran Contra was underway, the enterprise network turned to them to help it move money. So it'd be tempting to look at Shackley's career and conclude that, you know, if the octopus syndicate did exist, then he was the leader of it, you know. Now, he did have seniority in the intelligence community, obviously. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is that by just focusing on individuals like him, you run the risk of inflating their importance to the course of post-war history. You know, So instead, we should look at how he connects to other figures and institutions. And by doing that, we can open up a much larger system. And it's one that dwarfs a concept like the octopus. You know, It's one that is so vast. It demonstrates why it's impossible to believe that just eight guys could have directed everything that's happened since World War II, you know. And we should also remember as well that for all his influence and power, Shackley was still a company man and a careerist. And the reason he left the CIA is because he didn't agree with being passed over for promotion to CIA director and Stansfield Turner's, you know, faltering attempts at reform. He was additionally pissed because during the Nixon years, Kissinger had tried to dilute the power of the CIA by transferring some of its operational responsibilities to the Treasury Department and Pentagon. So Shackley was high-ranking. He had a considerable power base of his own, but he was ultimately a functionary. You know, he was subordinate to the larger system. Now, after he left the CIA, Shackley founded Research Associates, which was his private intelligence outfit, and then he helped set up Safari Club. But he never became a member of Safari Club as such. And it's with this that the Shackley network gets even bigger and more complex, and it connects then to um, Adnan Khashoggi, and then other Saudis, European intelligence agents, drug lords in the Middle East and Asia, and so on and so forth. His career trajectory, Shackley's, is emblematic of, you know, many, many other spooks who worked for government agencies before they moved to the private sector. And this blurred the boundaries between the two in the process and secretly facilitated uh, the extension of the security state, effectively, to multiple levels of society. So the ghost, Ted Shackley, really is just one big fish in a sea where big fish are the norm at that level. And again, he was also using his CIA contacts to feed information to Bush and Reagan 
during the 1979 campaign at Bush's request in the hope that once Reagan was elected, he could hand back this private intelligence network he was creating and reintegrate it into the CIA, you know, therefore neatly rolling back those 1970s reforms. We haven't really had space to get into Shackley and Wilson and Tom Kleins and their shared interest in Nugenhand Bank, which, you know, plugged them and by extension the CIA and the Bush Network directly into the global heroin trade and massive gun trafficking deals with ostensible enemy states like Gaddafi's Libya. Now, I'll be doing an episode on Nugenhand at some point later this year, so we won't get too deep into it here. But the key thing to bear in mind, like any organized crime operation, trust is in very short supply and people betray each other all the time in these uh, secret state operations. And so it happened with Shackley, uh, who shanked Wilson so that he could move in on Wilson's rackets, largely at the behest of Poppy Bush, it has to be said, and also so that Shackley could maintain control of that privatized intelligence network long enough for Reagan to get into power, like we said. Now, this incident further deflates Danny's notion of the octopus syndicate being a shadow venture that acts as a unified collective orchestrating world events, you know. This is from uh, Joseph Trento, and I've edited this for length, but quote, in February 1977, the FBI interviewed Ed Wilson for the first time. They asked Wilson about an allegation that he had paid CIA explosives expert William David Weisenberger to build explosive timer prototypes for Libya. Wilson was friendly, but refused to name his lawyer or make his financial records available. Wilson told the agents that his records show nothing incriminating. Wilson had been caught by surprise. He had no idea that Ted Shackley had been the source of the allegation. Shackley, at this time the Associate Deputy Director for Operations, he's still in the CIA here, understood that Carter's election and his desire to reform the CIA were not going to be helpful to his faction's objectives unless Shackley took direct action to complete the privatization of intelligence operations soon the Safari Club would not have a conduit to DO resources. The solution was to create a totally private intelligence network using CIA assets until President Carter could be replaced. Shackley felt he had an opportunity to control intelligence operations if he had resources available. The operations that were the most secret were those that involved the mutual interests of the CIA and the Saudis, but went beyond the Middle East. These private resources totaled only a small amount of the entire CIA covert budget, but their power came from the fact that the operations were the most sensitive that the CIA undertook. So think drugs, murder, you know. Using Tom Kleins, whom Wilson totally trusted, Shackley began to move in on Wilson's far-flung operations on two tracks. First, he would use Kleins to take over Wilson's businesses, and then he would get Wilson out of the way by convincing prosecutors that Wilson was a former agent gone bad. Now, yeah, I mean, forget the other octopus um, suspects. Just by following Ted Shackley we can expand the network map as much as we like, effectively. I mean, let's not forget he was also a member of Le Cercle. Uh, and not only that, he actually chaired the organization at one time. Um, he attended meetings up through the 80s and into, I believe, 1990. And it's through the work of David Teacher 
that we know that it played some kind of role, diddly circly, in getting both Thatcher and Reagan elected and then kickstarting the neoliberal revolution, you know, on either side of the Atlantic. And once you appreciate this Lysirkley angle, the notion of Ted Shackley or any of the other octopus members as boss figures, it starts to look even shakier because given the world that Lysirkley connects to, you know, we're talking Rockefeller money, Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the European Stay Behinds, P2, the World Anti-Communist League. There's entire constellations of deep power that Shackley and his associates could not possibly have had total control of. You know? Now, Shackley also published a book in 1981 called The Third Option, and this was influenced by his experiences in Vietnam and Laos. And he advocated for a kind of middle ground in counterinsurgency between all-out war and psychological operations uh, aiming to win hearts and minds. Now, this is from a 1983 lecture he gave at Georgetown University, uh, which had Olive North in attendance, funnily enough. Quote, a special mechanism of government should be established to control all special operations and their assets dedicated to the multiple tasks of counterinsurgency, guerrilla warfare, and anti-terrorist operations. The intelligence focus could then be applied to apparent opportunities in Mozambique, Angola, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and perhaps even the Western Sahara. So this special mechanism of government uh, finds form in a number of different groups. You know, you've got the upper echelons of the CIA, the guys who kind of compartmentalize what they're doing, even from other parts of the CIA. You have Safari Club, the Circle, the Enterprise, the Continuity of Government Project. And it also connects as well to this concept of the dual state. Now, I think we discussed this very briefly during the episode we did about Alan Dulles way, way, way back in 2020 or so. I'll just reiterate that again um, in case you've forgotten. So the concept of the dual state was originated by um, Ernst Frankel. It was to describe how dictatorships function, you know, and the model has been applied to other countries as well, especially like the US. What it does is it divides a state into two. You have the normative state, which is subject to media scrutiny and democratic accountability. And then you have the uh, prerogative state, which is allowed to operate unchecked and uses violence and subversion to achieve its objectives. And occasionally it may interfere in the functioning of its own uh normative state, you know, rigging elections, running secret surveillance campaigns on uh, political enemies of its domestic factions, assassinating a president in downtown Dallas, maybe. And so you have a guy called Hans Morgenthau, who wrote about the dual state concept. And the model was probably an influence on the OSS old boys who went on to found the CIA. Now, the dual state concept is a very early iteration of the deep state concept. Operatives who are attached to these prerogative state outfits meet, they exchange ideas, they form new side businesses and plan intelligence operations outside 
official channels of communication and accountability. And they also bring new proposals back to their day jobs, which influence the officials around them and sometimes become state policy. So the shield, you know, the Le Cercle detachment that helps sell Thatcher to British state functionaries in the city and the media and the spooks, and then assisted with money laundering and arms sales during Iran-Contra. That is an example of what this looks like in practice. Le Cercle cooked up these plans for Reagan and Thatcher, and then an outfit like the shield was dispatched to make it happen. Now, it is darkly funny that we are in the year 2023 now. All of us know what has happened over the last like two decades alone. And you still get people who say that conspiracy in the ruling class can't be real because people would talk. Well, I mean, Shackley did talk. He was giving fucking paid speeches at Georgetown University. We just chose not to listen to this stuff, you know. And what's even better is he was talking about creating very real secret mechanisms of government, you know. Now, intriguingly, uh, Jonathan Quitney's 1987 book, Crimes of Patriots, includes this passage, quote, Looking at the list of disasters Shackley and his allies have presided over during their careers, one might conclude that on the day the CIA hired Shackley, it could have done better hiring a KGB agent. A Soviet mall probably could not have done as much damage to the national security of the United States with all his wiles as Shackley did with the most patriotic of intentions. So do remember that Danny and the LaRoucheites had this belief that the Bay of Pigs and other anti-Castro operations, they'd been hobbled by secret KGB sympathizers, <laughs> which, you know, it's probably because of stuff like that that they, they started thinking that way. Well, maybe not the LaRoucheites, they have their own weird agenda going on here. But once you understand that guys like Shackley are functionaries of this prerogative state, and that it in turn links up with other similar networks from other countries to achieve, you know, the same objectives, you start to realize that these people are so career and power and money obsessed. They are so obstinate and pig-headed in the way they do business. So from the outside, yeah, it could well appear to especially paranoid types that Shackley was secretly working for the KGB. But once you understand this dual state concept, this deep state concept, you can understand it from a different point of view then. And something else that Danny's theory misses, and this is something that is absolutely fundamental to understanding the octopus as we've defined it, and parapolitics in general, in fact. All of these operatives, your Bush, Shackley, Khashoggi, you know, they're all part of a transnational superclass of powerful business and political fixers who are ferociously committed to the expansion of capital and perpetual growth. I use business there interchangeably with intelligence because, you know, they, they're kind of handmaidens of each other in a strange way. Now, if we don't appreciate this supranational deep state concept, we can misread key historical moments the way that Danny and the LaRouches do and wind up arguing the same batshit stuff that they did. But understanding this superclass is key to understanding why and how 
major figures in intelligence and business and politics everywhere from America to Europe to the Middle East could be pledging their support for counterterrorism policies throughout the 80s while actively facilitating terrorist activities through direct and indirect support networks or how they could be making soaring speeches in favor of peace and justice while they were equipping gladio cells to shoot up supermarkets in Belgium and bomb train stations in Italy. Yeah. And so looking at the role and function of an outfit like Lee Cirque, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that they run pretty much the same way an organized crime group would, right? You have layers of insulation between the people at the top, the ones who uh, give the orders and then devise policy. And then you have the people on the street who actually have to do the shit work, you know? And even at that street level, it's entirely possible these guys will just contract out jobs to people who often just see the money and have no desire to ask too many questions about what they are participating in. And what's important to also note here is that by the start of the 80s, as we've touched on before, counter-terrorism was becoming an increasingly powerful new religion in these circles. And their concept of terrorism was and is. It's so amorphous and difficult to nail down that it serves as a very useful weapon against dissent and what the masters of the universe consider to be subversive activity. And it also provides a handy cover to expand state surveillance programs and further empower uh, security services and <laughs> arms manufacturers, ultimately. Now, we've already covered the enterprise, the Soviet-Afghan war, Iran-Contra, and, and more besides, but I felt it was important to discuss Shackley and Lysirkley again as an example of how groups like them are a major component of everything that is about to happen here tonight, you know, directly and indirectly. And we need to be thinking about how, in keeping with the social and economic order they favor, they rely in large part on subversion and destabilization operations, as we discussed last episode. And it's also worth saying, one last time, that the octopus as conceptualized by Danny Casolaro is, ultimately, just one more node in something infinitely bigger baby. The octopus we've been chasing is much, much larger. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something, as you can see, almost a party on. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? The East German government said tonight they were going to make more openings in the wall, at least a dozen more, put bulldozers right through the wall so that more people could cross to the West. The East German communist leadership tonight said there'd be a new election law guaranteeing secret elections which the rest of the world could monitor. And only 24 hours after East Germans were told they could go anywhere, anytime, the Soviet Union said that was a sensible move. 
Thousands of East Germans came across the border today, perhaps more than 100,000, so many that border police lost count. And at every border crossing, thousands of West Germans there to say welcome. Some of the really good news today was for the East German government. While thousands and thousands came to look, even gape at this showcase of capitalism, the vast majority said they would be going back. The simple act of giving people the freedom to travel may have convinced East Germans they need not take flight whenever the door opens just a fraction. It has been an astonishing day. Hour after hour, all through today, thousands and thousands of West Germans have come to the wall to see for themselves, to climb up on this hideous structure, to finally look down at what has been no man's land for so long. Finally, after all these years, to say in person what they think of the East German border guards, or try to make friends. Suddenly, a flashback to what it was like for so long. A young man in the East makes a dash for the wall. They catch him and take him away. Presumably, he should have used a legal border crossing. Only a couple of years ago, he might have been shot. Not today. Today, it was possible to have a dialogue. Your government seems to be changing every day. Where do you think it's going? That's the government's problem, he says, not mine. Such an astonishing moment in history. There are two kinds of businesses. Those which flourish from peace and the strengthening of law and those which require the opposite. Zones of incessant chaos like Chechnya, Colombia, Afghanistan, where drugs can be grown or trafficked under the watch of PMCs. I know why I'm remembering this. There are things we don't think about in America, things I don't want to think about myself, like this flood of emails from Russians who I have never met, about Far West Limited, a metagroup almost unknown and yet so powerful it can apparently manipulate states for the ends of the drug traffic, spreading violence in an organized route from Afghanistan to New York. So you've got the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. And this is when Western capital very quickly linked up with former Soviet apparatchiks and spilled across what had been the USSR to loot and pillage with the full blessing of the US, you know. Our Western oil companies would end up bribing leaders of the new post-Soviet states to secure rights to their oil reserves. In Central Asia especially, lots of new uh, nations emerging there. So companies like Exxon, uh, Shell, Enron, BP, they all shelled out billions in bribes and um, investment, you know. And they estimated there was at least $6 trillion worth of oil in Central Asia and they wanted every drop of it, people. Now, American companies would end up owning about 75% of these leases by the end of the 90s. But at the same time, you get the sense that the West was briefly uncertain in victory. You know, it was kind of drunk off that big dub of the Ruskies. It was shiftily kind of promising a peace dividend while looking around for a new enemy, you know. They tried Saddam. 
That didn't really pan out. And then they pivoted to Yugoslavia as that began to fall apart. So here's how I think it works most of the time, right? You have conscious orchestration of some events, you know, an authentic conspiracy. And other times I think you have them just putting wheels in motion, man, just vibing. And it's a kind of let's see where the chips fall tactic, you know. And they improvise their response to what happens, you know, while prioritizing that bottom line. Now, what's notable about it all is how little the basic underlying methods have changed, really. So remember that the Cuban exiles, the CIA had been working with in the 60s, they didn't really disappear. They were integrated into the security state in many cases, or they went underground to be reactivated when necessary as a weapon against the left or any other opposition to Western expansion. Now, the same goes for the guys that they tapped to participate in Condor. Many of those guys were actually Cuban exiles anyway. Uh, Same goes for the Contras in the 80s. Same went for the Gladio agents in Europe and whatever horrifying group of sociopaths NATO has been training in Ukraine, the same will go for them as well. Now, these assets can be deployed to assist you in your attempt to expand the frontier or open up new markets or destabilize an enemy regime, or they can be used to provide a pretext for regime change, you know, or that other old saw, humanitarian intervention, right? So by the 1990s, the new asset and the new universal adversary was going to be the Islamic terrorist. Remember what we said last episode, right? The people at the top of the system, they profit off precarity and chaos. And in many cases, they willfully create the problems to which they then propose insane solutions. It doesn't get much crazier than the way the US played both sides in the Iran-Iraq war. You know, they cultivated Saddam as an asset, then turned around and went to war with him. And it doesn't get much crazier than what they were doing with what would become Al-Qaeda in the 80s and then up through the 90s. So yeah, as they had with old partners like the Cuban exiles, the Western security state was deploying its old buddies. In this case, again, many of them had been from uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and they were redeploying them to new battlefields as the 1990s got underway. This is from, who else? It's from Peter Dale Scott. Quote, what is slowly emerging from Al-Qaeda activities in Central Asia in the 1990s is the extent to which they have acted in the interests of both American oil companies and the US government. In one way or another, Americans in the 1990s cooperated with Al-Qaeda terrorists in Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, and Kosovo. In other countries, notably Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Georgia, Al-Qaeda terrorists have provided pretexts or opportunities for U.S. military commitment and even troops to follow. This has been most obvious in the years since the end of the Afghan war in 1989. Fleeing the hostilities in Afghanistan, some Uzbek and Tajik Mujahideen and refugees started fleeing or returning north across the Amudaya. 
In this confusion, cross-border raids of the kind originally encouraged by CIA Director William Casey back in the mid-1980s continued, with or without US backing. This destabilization was an explicit goal of US policy in the Reagan era, and it did not change with the end of the Afghan war. On the contrary, the United States was concerned to hasten the breakup of the Soviet Union and increasingly to gain access to the petroleum reserves of the Caspian Basin, which at that time was still estimated to be the largest known reserves of unexploited fuel on the planet. So while you know, think tankers and media pundits were heralding this end of history and the 90s were being sold as the dawn of a new era, you know, where the old problems had been settled and all we needed to do was tinker around the edges, there we have it. Plenty of ominous aberrations, if you will, that could be found if you knew where to look. And again, Peter Dale Scott, quote, In one former Soviet Republic, Azerbaijan, Arab-Afghan jihadis clearly assisted the effort of US oil companies to penetrate the region. In 1991, Richard Seacard, Heine Ederheit, and Ed Dearborn, three veterans of US operations in Laos, and later of Oliver North's operations with the Contras, turned up in Baku under the cover of an American company. Mega oil, baby. Now, this was at a time when the first Bush administration had expressed its support for an oil pipeline stretching from Azerbaijan across the Caucasus to Turkey. Mega never found oil, but did contribute materially to the removal of Azerbaijan from the sphere of post-Soviet Russian influence. So, interestingly, Danny Casolaro had actually been looking into Mega and asking questions about their activities just before he was killed. And yeah, in the years since, there have been some very interesting questions asked um, about what exactly Mega operatives were up to in these places that they were visiting in Central Asia. Now, Peter Dale Scott has pointed out that by the early 90s, Opium was flowing out of Afghanistan through Pakistan and into Azerbaijan, then on into Chechnya and from there to Western Europe and the US. And it's possible that Mega, with its fleet of private aircraft and its role as a CIA front, was involved in smuggling some of this dope. Uh, Nafiz Ahmed writes, quote, In Azerbaijan, Mega set up an airline to secretly fly hundreds of Al-Qaeda Mujahideen from Afghanistan into Azerbaijan. By 1993, Mega Oil had recruited and armed 2,000 Mujahideen, converting Baku into a base for regional jihadi operations. And we get more interesting connections that open up around Mega's financial moves. Uh, the Saudi European director, uh, Gaith Ferreon, he's the former head of Saudi intelligence, don't forget. He was the registered agent for the Bush family in the Middle East. And um, these interests involved Bahrain oil interests that were controlled by Richard Seacard's mega oil. You know, And this oil, some of this oil would get sold back to Harkin Energy at a heavily discounted rate. And of course, um, the leader of uh, Bahrain, uh, Prince Abdullah, I think he was called at the time. He was also one of the directors of the Saudi uh, European Investment uh, Fund, which is, again, tied back into the bushes. So, 
you have to start questioning here. Is this part of what those FBI agents who spoke to Sibel Edmonds, is this what they nicknamed Gladio B? Well, have a listen to what Graham Fuller, who is the deputy director of the CIA's National Council on Intelligence, have a listen to what he had to say about the way these uh, assets were used in the 90s and see what you make of it. Quote, the policy of guiding the evolution of Islam and of helping them against our adversaries worked marvelously well in Afghanistan against the Red Army. The same doctrines can still be used to destabilize what remains of Russian power, and especially to counter the Chinese influence in Central Asia. So yeah, and informing all of this was that broader objective to gain control of key energy reserves. So when bin Laden moved his base of operations from Sudan to Afghanistan in 1996, he cut a deal with Pakistani intelligence where they'd protect him in exchange for aligning himself with the Taliban. That's, that was the trade-off. The Saudis are supposed to have brokered this agreement, and it gets particularly knotty when you consider the U.S. had to have been aware of this arrangement at some institutional level. You know, elements in U.S. intelligence were cautiously supportive of the Taliban during the mid-90s. There was one American diplomatic source. He told Ahmed uh, Rashad in the mid-90s, quote, the Taliban will probably develop like the Saudis. There will be Aramco, a consortium of oil companies controlling Saudi oil, pipelines and emir, no parliament, and lots and lots of Sharia law. We can live with that. So the Saudi connection, of course, that's our, another link back to the Bush network and therefore the enterprise. Now, incidentally, um, I thought this was quite funny when I found it out. Bush, the younger, W. Bush, he apparently plagiarized uh, Rashad's work when he was writing his presidential memoirs. I don't know. thought I'd include that. Bit of levity bit of fun. So yeah, the end of the Cold War then had no real impact on the CIA and other security agencies overlap with organized crime and terrorism. And in fact, this period is where it all ties together. And at the same time, it explodes into these wild fractals that you could spend your life <laughs> trying to make sense of. Uh, we'll be doing a more in-depth look at the Balkans another time. Got something planned for later in the year for that. But we've discussed before how the Bosnian War is where the West really started to seize on the idea of humanitarian intervention as a cover, you know, for expansionist ambitions. So between 1992 and 95, the Pentagon assisted Al-Qaeda operatives traveling to Bosnia to fight in the war against the Croats and the Serbs. Uh, according to Sis uh, Huib, bin Laden's fighters were shock troops. That's what they were called. And when the Bosnian war ended, they were redeployed to Kosovo to support the KLA in both uh, combat operations and also gun running and drug trafficking. And it's impossible really to overstate how crucial guns and drugs are as hidden engines of the Western economy. Uh, there's a an academic called Loretta Napoleoni uh, who she investigates terrorist financing. She said in 2013, 
that she put the value of this underground arms and drugs trade at $1.5 trillion, right? That's money that flows into the West and is cycled through the legitimate financial system. And she describes this as a vital element of the Western economy. You know, our economies, you know, they, they are afloat on that money. Now, Bin Laden was a regular underworld venture capitalist, really. He was spreading his money far and wide. This is from Ceasefire magazine. Quote, from the mid-1990s, Bin Laden funded Chechen guerrilla leader uh, Shamil Bazaev and Omar ibn al-Khattab to the tune of several millions of dollars per month, sidelining the moderate Chechen majority. U.S. intelligence remained deeply involved until the end of the decade. According to Yosef Bodansky, then director of the U.S. Congressional Task Force on Terrorism and Unconventional Warfare, Washington was actively involved in yet another anti-Russian jihad, seeking to support and empower the most virulent anti-Western Islamist forces. U.S. government officials participated in a formal meeting in Azerbaijan in December 1999 in which specific programs for the training and equipping of Mujahideen from the Caucasus, Central South Asia, and the Arab world were discussed and agreed upon, culminating in Washington's tacit encouragement of both Muslim allies, mainly Turkey, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, and U.S. private security companies. So think, you know, Dinecar, that kind of thing. To assist the Chechens and their Islamist allies to surge in the spring of 2000 and sustain the ensuing jihad for a long time, the US saw the sponsorship of Islamist jihad in the Caucasus as a way to deprive Russia of a viable pipeline route through spiraling violence and terrorism. So Sibel Edmonds was... Yeah, she was an FBI translator. We mentioned in the last episode. I think we've talked about her in the Cartel World episode as well. Uh, she started working for the FBI not long after 9-11. She stumbled across parts of this story we've been telling during her time there. She was, in fact, willing to go on the record. Um, she submitted everything she knew to US government officials, and eventually she came to be described as the most gagged woman in American history. This is from The Independent in 2004. Quote, the Bush administration will today seek to prevent a former FBI translator from providing evidence about 11th of September intelligence failures to a group of relatives and survivors who have accused international banks and officials of aiding al-Qaeda. Uh, the US Justice Department is seeking to stop her from testifying, citing the rarely used state secrets privilege Today, in a federal court in Washington, senior government lawyers will try to gag Mrs. Edmonds, claiming that disclosure of her evidence would cause serious damage to the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States. Not for the first time uh, in this story, the Department of Justice intervenes to gag and smear someone. Uh, lest they expose massive corruption. And she did have some absolutely amazing things to tell anyone who'd listen. Um, she said, quote, In the late 1990s, all the way up to 9-11, Ayman al-Zahari and other Mujahideen operatives were meeting regularly with senior U.S. officials from the Pentagon, CIA, and U.S. State Department in the U.S. Embassy in Baku to plan the Pentagon's Balkan operations with the Mujahideen. This was Gladio 
B. We had support for these operations from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, but the US oversaw and directed them. They were being run from a secret section of the Pentagon with its own office. Uh, it's worth pointing out as well that Mohammed al-Zahari, who was the brother of bin Laden's key guy, Ayman, he personally led a KLA unit, and he even had a radio that had been supplied to him by NATO brass that he could use to coordinate operations. Throughout the 90s, the Albanian mafia, they were coming to exert more and more control uh, of the drugs and the arms trades. And the KLA, um, backed to the hill by NATO and the Western intelligence community, that was the beneficiary of tens of millions um, of these drug profits. Now, Bin Laden and other terrorism financiers, you know, with their control of the opium fields in Afghanistan, they were crucial partners in this network. At one time, it was estimated that Bin Laden uh, received a cut of as much as 10% of the opium that was moving out of Afghanistan. Uh, this is Edmonds again, quote, I know for a fact that NATO planes routinely shipped heroin to Belgium, where they then made their way into Europe and to the UK. They also shipped heroin to distribution centers in Chicago and New Jersey. And this is another interesting link here, because we'll remember that Indira Singh went on the record, and she told reporters that during her investigation of P-TECH, she was told by FBI and DEA agents that the firm was a front for a surviving part of the Iran-Contra network, and it was heavily involved in drug trafficking um, out of New Jersey and Chicago. And Edmonds, one more time, quote, FBI counterintelligence and the DEA operations had acquired evidence of this drug trafficking in its surveillance of a wide range of targets, including senior officials in the Pentagon, CIA, and State Department. Uh, it was clear from this evidence that the whole funnel of drugs, money, and terror in Central Asia was directed by these officials. So Edmonds also described how Rather than act on any of this information, the FBI and the CIA staff sat on it and they used it as blackmail to serve their own objectives, you know. So from top to bottom, through the 90s leading up to 2001, the entire Western security apparatus was soaked in corruption, you know. Everybody was spying on everyone else. There were wheels within wheels, schemes within schemes, right? And then Edmonds sat down with a couple of journalists from the, the UK Sunday Times newspaper. And this was supposed to be for a four-part investigative series that was going to run in 2008. And then it never ran. And according to one of these journalists, um, who they would only speak on condition of anonymity, right? They said this, quote, We'd spoken to several current and active Pentagon officials confirming the existence of U.S. operations sponsoring Mujahideen networks in Central Asia from the 90s to 2001. These Mujahideen networks were entwined with a whole range of criminal enterprises, including drugs and guns. The Pentagon officials corroborated Edmund's allegations against specific U.S. officials, and I'd also interviewed an MI6 officer who confirmed that the U.S. was running these operations sponsoring Mujahideen in that period. I wasn't party to the editorial decision to drop the story, but there was a belief in the office among several journalists who were part of the Insight Investigative Unit that the decision was made under pressure 
from the U.S. State Department because the story might cause a diplomatic incident. So, as with other people in this story, um, Sibel Edmonds has kind of drifted to the right now, the paranoid right too, and she's now a massive anti-vaxxer, which for me it's another example of a whistleblower in this story kind of destroying their own credibility, you know what I mean? And it's always interesting to ask, well, did that happen because they were always like that? Did it happen because they just spent so long being uh, pushed to the margins that they finally just kind of cracked? Um, or did it happen because they were directed to take that turn? There are so many precedents for the US security state collaborating with Al-Qaeda operatives. And to be fair, not just the US security state, you know, just the Western intelligence establishment in general. But without a doubt, my favorite is probably Ali Mohammed, who once worked as Ayman al-Zahari's translator when he traveled to the US. Now, Mohammed's biography is absolutely fucking ludicrous. And it's very hard not to feel insulted that other grown adults expect you and me to believe he just happened to keep slipping between cracks in the bureaucracy for as long as he did. So he started out as an Egyptian army intelligence agent, and he was on the CIA's radar at least as far back as the 1980s, because he'd helped train Mujahideen fighters for bin Laden, and he fought the Soviets himself. And then after this, in line with, say, you know, Cuban exile fighters, he moved to America and just breezed into the U.S. Army. Um, he served as a drill instructor at fucking Fort Bragg. Now, his commanding officers in um, the U.S. Army repeatedly requested that he be investigated and discharged, and they were ignored, you know. And by this point, he was serving in U.S. Special Forces, and it seemed clear to his, his comrades in arms that he was being sponsored by the CIA. I mean, he was so brazen. He'd take field manuals and military textbooks off base, photocopy them, and then either post them or hand-deliver them to Al-Qaeda agents while he was on R&R uh, from the army. In the early 90s, he actually semi-retired to the U.S. Army Reserve, and he got a job working for Burns International Security as a guard. This is the same place that Timothy McVeigh had worked. Okay, now, the Oklahoma City bombing also has octopus connections, and I've consciously avoided getting into it during this series because it's so fucking gigantic and complex. But... Um, I would recommend you buy Aberrations in the Heartland of the Real um, for the, the lowdown on Oklahoma City. By the time Mohammed was at Burns, he was an informant for the CIA and the FBI. This is from Intel Wire, quote, It may or may not be true that Mohammed had no knowledge of the specific 9-11 plot, but the Egyptian terrorists did know the tactics used by the hijackers. He knew the specific location of the private post office boxes where the hijackers received mail in the United States. He knew Al-Qaeda was sponsoring flight training for terrorists. 
he knew of at least one specific terrorist operation centered on a suicide airplane attack, and he knew at least three terrorist pilots personally. He was linked to at least one of the specific schools visited by the 9-11 hijackers. He knew the internal procedures of the security company that maintained two checkpoints used by hijackers at Boston's Logan Airport. And he traveled back to Afghanistan. And he helped set up Al-Qaeda's um, cell structure organization. And at the same time, he also taught them what he learned from the U.S. military about counter-surveillance, intelligence collection, how to plan assassinations and make more sophisticated bombs and IEDs. And he also taught them how to hijack fucking civilian airliners. I mean, come on. Come on. And that cell structure organizing method also made me raise an eyebrow. And I don't know if I'm reaching here, if the paranoia has just reached fever pitch right now. But long-term listeners may remember our episode about Ronald Stark, who was, you know, the psychedelic spook. Now, he also advocated cell structure organizational methods. And this is where only a handful of guys with a full grasp of the entire operation move between uh, different network nodes or cells. And each one of these uh, works on their own discrete compartmentalized part of a much bigger plan. And the aim is to keep a tight lid on information and diffuse accountability in the event that the operation is, is blown. If you picture a car being built on an assembly line at a very weird car factory, right? So you have different people on the assembly line who are responsible for fitting different parts. You know, only in our scenario, they don't know what the finished product will look like. Sometimes they don't even know they're building a car, right? That is the basic idea behind this cell structure. So Peter Lance says this, quote, Spying first for the Central Intelligence Agency and later the FBI, Mohammed succeeded in penetrating the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, while simultaneously training the cell that blew up the World Trade Center in 1993. He went on to train Osama bin Laden's personal bodyguard and photographed the U.S. Embassy in Kenya, taking the surveillance pictures bin Laden himself used to target the suicide truck bomb that killed 224 and injured thousands in 1998. Now, penetrating the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, that is overstating it a little bit, considering the CIA had recruited him despite knowing he was a fucking Egyptian intelligence asset, or agent even. Goes on to say, quote, Mohammed accomplished all that fully nine years after the FBI first photographed the cell he trained using automatic weapons at a firing range on Long Island. He trained some of Al-Qaeda's most lethal terrorists in bomb-making and assassination tradecraft. He was so trusted by bin Laden that Ali was given the job of moving the Saudi emir from Afghanistan to Khartoum in 1991 and then back to Jalalabad in 1996. Now, intriguingly, he also ran a small-time computer security consultancy firm in Silicon Valley, uh, and the feds finally arrested him a couple of weeks after the African embassy bombings in 98, and at this point, he effectively disappeared. And as of 2001, they'd postponed sentencing indefinitely. 
And they found something else uh, pretty interesting on his computer too when they busted him. And these were documents that connected him to another Al-Qaeda operative called uh, Ihab Ali. Now, in 93, Ihab was a student at Airman Flight School in Norman uh, in Oklahoma. And this same flight school was visited by Mohammed Atta in June of 2000. So we can't possibly <clears throat> get into how fucking weird and extensive all the strange connections surrounding the 9-11 hijackers are. I mean, there are entire rabbit holes we could disappear down and never find our way back to the main point. You know, we could talk about uh, Zayed Jara, the United 93 hijacker. We could talk about him and his cousin Ali Al-Jara, who was a spy for Mossad. We could talk about the Florida flight school where the hijackers trained and how it was owned by a drug dealer called Rudy Deckers and another guy called Wally Hilliard. Now, Hilliard was from a fairly influential Florida family and he had some pull in local politics. In June of, I believe, 2000, a Learjet he owned was found to be carrying 30 pounds of heroin by the DEA. And before this, that same plane was making as many as 30 trips a week to South America. Uh, there was a witness called Amanda Keller. She says that she knew Mohammed Atta during his Florida period. She described him as a coke fiend and a party boy who was very tight with Deckers and Hilliard, far from, uh, you know, this devout fundamentalist Muslim. Uh, and it seems possible that... Atta and at least some of the other hijackers were also pulling double duty as drug couriers for, I mean, at the very least, Al-Qaeda. Hilliard also owned a business called Spatialite, in which a guy called Farhad Azima had an interest. Now, Azima owned an air freight company called Heavy Lift International, which has been documented as having flown guns to Pakistan during the Soviet-Afghan war, to Iran on behalf of the Enterprise, and to Croatia in the 1990s during their war with Serbia. In fact, he um, received a commendation from the US Air Force for his assistance with pre preparation for the Gulf War. Bill Clinton also attended his birthday party in 1996, and he led the guests in a a rendition of Happy Birthday, and Azima then donated $250,000 to Clinton's election campaign. So this policy, this Gladio B operation, this is something that's continued right up to the present day. Um, and I always think about this, but imagine going up to any American on September 12th, 2001, right? Fucking Manhattan is still a war zone. And imagine explaining to them that in just over a decade, the CIA and the Pentagon would be sponsoring Al-Qaeda and its splinter factions in, you know, the Syrian war. Imagine telling them that. And then look at the more recent story of uh, Shamima Begum and how she was groomed and trafficked to Syria from the UK by a Canadian intelligence asset, you know, and then she was stripped of her citizenship so now the state is, reserves the right to groom, traffic, and pimp your kid and then take away their passport and say they no longer have a home when the operation gets blown. I mean, 
what the fuck are we doing here, people? Um, I'll consider, again, my neck of the woods, consider Salman Abedi, right? The Manchester bomber. Uh, and then think about his and his family's extremely fucking strange connections to MI6 and MI5 and the way that they were effectively sponsored by the British security services to travel to Libya to fight against Gaddafi and then they were brought back to Britain. And then, you know, don't even get don't even get me started on ISIS and how much of its funding came from selling oil and drugs with the assistance of, you know, American allies like Saudi Arabia. Or how about the strange story of the French ISIS cell. This is from 2016, this. Um, so basically there were some gardeners in this town of Sommer and they saw a group of very strange looking guys leaving a cave near this church. They were working in, uh, I believe they were working in the garden of the church actually. And these guys got in this van and drove away. When the gardeners went to look in the cave that these guys had just left, they found a stash of pro-ISIS propaganda, flags, a generator even. So somewhere that these guys had obviously been coming for a very long time. Now that they told the local cops, the local cops passed this information to French spooks. The French spooks then farted around for a couple of hours before they released a statement saying the gardeners had actually stumbled across um, a training exercise. And then the police and everybody else were shut off from further information about what this training exercise was. And the story was pretty much scrubbed uh, from the internet shortly after this. I mean, they, we could keep going, you know, every time there's any kind of fucking terrorist attack uh, in Europe or America, it isn't long before the news articles start trickling out with these little mentions here and there about how they were known to MI5, they were known to MI6, they were known to the CIA. And you can't help but feel sometimes that's code for they work for us, shit, you know, sorry guys, whoops. Anyway, um, so to bring it back to pre-9-11 times, um, recently there was that declassified doc drop about Omar al-Bayoumi. Uh, he was the Saudi intelligence agent who moved to America in 1994 and this was on a work study visa and he settled in san diego and he was almost immediately suspected by everybody in the local muslim community of being a spy of some kind now he's placed on retainer by a contractor working for the saudi civil aviation authority and when they suggested cutting him loose you know because he'd only bothered attending like one semester of his course that was part of his work study uh visa yeah when they said we should probably just send this guy back the saudi government actually intervened and stressed that it was a matter of great urgency that he be kept funded in the states now uh, bayoumi went on to uh befriend uh, nawaf al hansmi and Khalid al-Midar who were two of the hijackers and in every single fucking regard he appears to have acted as their handler. You know, he set them up with apartments. He helped them find jobs, relayed information between them and senior Al-Qaeda figures. And this is from The Intercept. Uh, quote, the CIA had identified both 
Midar and Hazmi as Al-Qaeda operatives by early 2000, based partly on Midar's participation in an Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia, and the agency was tracking the pair's international movements. But the CIA did not pass on that information to officials at the FBI or other domestic agencies at the time, and the two plotters were not placed on any watch list that might have prevented them from entering the United States weeks later. It was not until weeks before the September 11th attacks that the FBI learned that Midar and Hazmi had entered the country and began a belated and unsuccessful search for them, even as both men were living openly in San Diego, according to multiple government reviews. Now in the I think there were about 510, 511 pages in this report. When this was declassified by the FBI um, last year, they said outright that Bayoumi's retainer was eventually paid directly by Bandar bin Sultan. Bandar Bush, friends and neighbors, the guy who was so close to Poppy and Dubia that he was considered one of the family. He's paying the handler of two of the 9-11 hijackers out of his own pocket. Yeah, this this whole octopus endeavor that we've been uh, embarking on for these last few months, it's a story about recurring patterns. I think I've said this before. And here we've got another one because time and again, the CIA made a concerted effort to, at the very least, not know what was going on or... You know, it just sat on information that it should have been sharing with other agencies. And even when those other agencies were looped in, as we see with the FBI, they also sometimes buried what they learned. Now, naturally, the Bush administration took care to try and classify in memory hall as much evidence of Saudi involvement in 9-11 as possible. You know, not just because of Saudi Arabia's close relationship with the US, but because once you start pulling those threads, who was paying who, who knew what, it isn't long before you encounter Poppy and Dubya, right? We said earlier, all roads in this story lead to 9-11, but by extension, they also all lead to the Bush family. Now, Way back at the start of our time covering American history, we discussed how um, the U.S. intelligence establishment developed out of the executive class, you know, that would gather information while it was on its travels and feed it back to the government when it got home. And what we're looking at with the 9-11 network, if you will, isn't too dissimilar, really. You have the intelligence community. Then you have a dizzying constellation of formal and informal assets. You've got people like Azima, Khashoggi, Hilliard, Bayoumi, Bin Sultan, and so on. And they serve much the same function that the previous generations of transnational class operatives did. You know, They move all over the world, they set up outposts, they collect intel, they connect people, and they facilitate plots. Now, Bush's time a CIA director and, you know, boss of the enterprise through the 80s that largely restored this free-flowing exchange of influence and favors between the uh, American intelligence community and private business, as we've discussed again at length. And speaking of which, 
We could also get into the very interesting links between the Bush family, uh, Halliburton, and the company that inspired Peter Dale Scott to actually coin the term Metagroup, which is a firm called Far West. Now, Far West was formed by a group of Russian GRU agents, and this was during the fucking chaos of the 1990s. French intelligence reported that Adnan uh, Khashoggi is said to have hosted a summit at his villa in France in 1999 that was attended by Far West personnel, uh, Chechen Al-Qaeda representatives, uh, Alexander Voloshin, who's the head of the Russian presidential administration, and a couple of dozen other organized crime and political figures from around the world. Now, different sources also have a number of drug traffickers from Venezuela, Kosovo, and the Middle East attending as well. What exactly was discussed at this meeting isn't really known for sure, although there are very strong suspicions that it pertained to drugs, arms, and the operation that would become known as the Russian 9-11, you know, the apartment bombings. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if part of what Al-Qaeda was calling the planes operation at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if that was also covered as well. See, Far West's kind of founding uh, guy, uh, Anton Surikov, he was allegedly Shamil Basayev's handler. Um, and Basayev was financed largely by Osama bin Laden for years. Uh, Far West, in turn, counted Dick Cheney, Neil Bush, and Halliburton as business associates. Now, Surikov's mentor was a guy called Andrei Kokoshin, who was a friend of Henry Kissinger's. He was friendly with David Rockefeller as well uh, through their attendance of the Dartmouth conferences. Rockefeller, of course, was a Le Cercle member, and this was for the better part of 30 years. He says he only stopped attending meetings in the late 90s because the group's ultra-right politics had turned even more hardline, you know, after the collapse of the, the USSR. So Far West operatives appear to have used uh, Basayev's network as part of a program of managed violence in Russia and Chechnya. And the firm also had a very close working relationship with the CIA and connected outfits like, as we mentioned, Halliburton, but also the Pakistani ISI, Al-Qaeda, Saudi intelligence, and heroin traffickers. Uh, now, this is Laurie Noel. She's writing in the Herald Sun. Uh, you can find this article, I believe, on the Wayback Machine. Um, it's not on their, their normal website anymore. Uh, she wrote about Far West LLC and its role in selling missiles and other heavy weapons around the world. And crucially, the key thing to remember is that it was a vast group, had connections everywhere. And it was surrounded by networks of other companies and think tanks and policy groups and underworld operatives. Uh, and she wrote this, quote, The president of Far West LLC is a Saudi prince, senior intelligence officer, and relative of Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. Faisal himself owns a 37% stake in Far West. The company's principal U.S. connections are Fritz Ermath, Robert Gates, Robert Kagan, Zeno Baden, and Fiona Hill of the CIA. Um, just... A quick note here, right, about Fiona Hill, uh, this claim that she was in the CIA. She was actually a senior intelligence analyst for uh, Bush the Younger and Obama. 
it's a distinction without a real difference, but you know, just to uh, split some hairs there, a little bit of minor fact checking. Uh, she was also a witness during the Trump impeachment hearings, and the last I read, she was about to become the uh, Chancellor of Durham University uh, over here. So yeah, make of that what you will. Also, Prince Turkey Al-Falsal is the guy who abruptly quit his job as the head of Saudi intelligence 10 days before 9-11. So, we could quite easily, and it's very tempting, we could quite easily drive ourselves off the fucking deep end, just working through all these different groups and obscure connections and pockets of weirdness, but it's probably better to step back a little here, take a breath, and summarize. Okay. So what do we have? We have an interlinking series of factions and elite operatives who are looking for a, a new unifying cause after the fall of the Soviet Union. This is the transnational, supranational deep state. For us, this is the octopus, right? Now this transnational class needs this new cause to cloak its never-ending search for new markets. It needs pretexts to go in, smash, destroy, and conquer. You know? And these markets revolve mostly around natural resources, you know, oil, gas, as well as tech, weapons, and narcotics trafficking. Time and time again, it comes back to drugs, guns, and oil. Now, elements within this class utilize radical Islamic terrorism, and they deploy managed violence throughout the 90s as part of a destabilization strategy that's aimed at giving the West that pretext to open up these new markets. And at the same time, you have the neocons, you know, who are obsessed with remaking the Middle East to suit the needs of US capital, exerting more and more influence over public and private policy as the 90s roll on, surrounding Bush the Younger, really, you know, and serving as strategist for his presidential run. Now, check out previous chapters for more information on how W made it to the White House. We could get lost in the weeds 
on how exactly 9-11 went down, who knew what, because, you know, let's make it clear, we've mentioned people like, you know, you know Fritz Ermarth or Fiona Hill or Robert Kagan, all these different people, just because they were connected to different companies and stuff, that's not the same thing as saying that they were in any way involved in planning 9-11 or even had advanced knowledge of it. In fact, in the case of someone like Fiona Hill, um, okay, so she was a contact for Far West in the States, but there is no evidence whatsoever that she was privy to anything uh, higher up. So it's probably best to ask ourselves now three basic questions. Who ultimately benefited from 9-11? What were the gravitational effects of 9-11 on the history that came before and after it? And how do we know to a reasonable degree of certainty that there was a conscious series of decisions that were made somewhere in the secret state not to prevent what was going to happen? So I feel like this entire miniseries, to say nothing of everything else we've talked about over the last couple of years, that answers the first question. To answer the second one, we should begin by thinking about the way that 9-11 was used as a media spectacle and how this was enabled uh, by the early internet, you know. Something we were talking about last episode is how 9-11 served as a kind of accelerant for particular trends in politics and technology and security state that had been developing anyway over the previous few decades. And of particular importance here for us is that matrix of high-tech surveillance they've been building all through the 1990s. This is the system of control and surveillance that eventually wound up um, supplanting programs like Promise. Check out chapter 10 for more on that. So it's for this reason that I don't think we can discuss 9-11 without talking about Silicon Alley in Manhattan and the dot-com boom. Now, the way Oliver North had used Promise during the 80s alone, you know, to manage the main cause subversives database, it was instructive for the intelligence community and the operation they undertook to seed bugged copies of Promise around the world was essentially the intelligence coup of the 1980s and the 1990s, you know. We've discussed before what a profound influence this project had on the intelligence community's thinking, you know. Remember Adi Ben Menashe and Rafi Eitan and uh, assorted US spooks saying Promise changed the game back then, you know. And we've got to also imagine that it also inspired new generations of cyber spooks. So here's one more question that I think is worth reflecting on. Because if we are arguing here that 9-11 was basically the strategy of tension op of all time, and we are, then you can't help but wonder, friends, beyond Al-Qaeda, and the project for a new American century, and the dope trade, and the Balkan Wars, and the oil, and so on. What did the emergence of the internet mean for parapolitical networks?
It was a guy called Stuart Brand. Uh, he was the editor of a magazine called Whole Earth Catalog. And that encapsulated the utopianism of the internet pioneers and the idealists, you know. And it also encapsulates the way that it curdled into something much darker and more ambiguous. Uh, he went from selling a million copies of each issue of his underground magazine um, to organizing conferences for Royal Dutch Shell and AT&T, you know. And on the emerging uh, tech underground of the late 60s, he wrote this, quote, there was this tiny unknown subset of long hairs who were hanging out with computers. They had nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with drugs. And their world was getting better and better. And that wasn't true of politics or of drugs, which reinforced the idea that this is where the action was. So the internet, right from the beginning, was viewed as simultaneously, you know, an escape from the mundane real world, a way to share information and dissolve the divisions in society, you know, a great democratizing force that would destroy the rigid hierarchies of the old world and etc. and yada yada. And so, you know, this is emerging as on college campuses across America. You've got these hippies and idealists mingling with these military industrial complex sickos and spooks. Um, I'm reminded of that Thomas Pinchon quote, actually, uh, the internet was conceived in sin. And it's important to bear this in mind about, you know, ARPANET and how the internet actually began as a tool of warfare. Because by the 90s, <laughs> this utopian thinking about the net, that was all pervasive. We were told, you know, governments feared it because of its liberatory power. And therefore, this new class of tech CEOs were akin to emancipators of the entire human race. So you've got these Web 1.0 mavericks and dot-com uh, pioneers who demonstrate that this was not exactly true. You know, the same old motivations were at play. Greed, fear, control, paranoia. So far from being a new economy, as it was described, the 1990s startup culture, especially in Manhattan, followed a fairly predictable boom and bust pattern. And the joke at this time, in fact, was that if your dot-com firm wasn't losing money, you were a failure. Yeah. Now, for the operatives, I'm sure there were probably a few fleeting moments of concern about this new platform because it could facilitate the transmission of vast amounts of unfiltered information. But then I think they very quickly realized that actually <laughs> this new platform can facilitate vast amounts of unfiltered information. This is incredibly useful as a way to kind of hide our shit in plain sight, you know, and to fuck around with concepts like objective reality in furtherance of certain agendas. And thus began a campaign of reconquest, really. The founding of Incutel is what I'm thinking about here, because that has something of the spirit of promise about it. 
This is from Fortune uh, magazine. Quote, as the internet boom in the late 1990s began monopolizing engineer talent and venture capital, Silicon Valley quickly outpaced the government as the country's nexus of innovation. To get its hands on the best new technology, the CIA created InQtel. Now, InQtel was the brainchild of George Tenet, a major 9-11 figure, uh, the future CIA director, of course. He pitched investing about $30 million a year to begin with in new startups just to ensure that the agency would be on the bleeding edge of technology. And working with him on this venture was a CIA counselor to the director of intelligence, Buzzy Krongard, and Norm Augustine, as ever. We should be thinking about the direct links between these guys and major players in this story. So InQtel was crucial to creating technology uh, that was behind the NSA's PRISM program. And in fact, PRISM has long been rumored to have incorporated a lot of the promised software code in its early versions and expanded on it and developed it and evolved it even more. We'll also remember the promised connection to InQtel via InQtel founder Norm Augustin, the former CEO of Lockheed, while it was helping install Promise on US Air Force fighter jets, and also possibly involved in distributing the backdoor version of the program around the world. So when the dot-com bubble burst, the tech bros were in dire financial straits and they needed some quick cash to stay solvent. The CIA was in the market, you know, for future-facing technology that would help them commit great evil. And so a meeting of the minds was about to occur, friends. And after 9-11, and then the anthrax scare, and then the launch of the war on terror, Silicon Valley offered itself as a full-fledged partner to the US security state. This is what I'm talking about by acceleration, okay? The trend was always there. And as we've seen, the CIA and the NSA have been dealing with Silicon Valley from the very beginning, but 9-11 turbocharged this relationship. But yeah, again, let's not get it twisted. The dot-com era was haunted by spooks and sickos from beginning to end. Um, ValueAmerica.com, very intriguing example. So, for one beautiful moment, Value America was second only to Amazon as an online retailer. And Value America's stock price rose and rose and rose and then crashed spectacularly within a year. Um, it was one of the first big dot-com firms to fail. This firm was founded by a guy called Craig Wynn, who has since tried his hand as a kind of epic right-wing atheist guy, you know, writing books, exposing Islam and all the rest of it. He raised seed funding for Value America from Paul Allen, who was Bill Gates's old partner in crime, and a gentleman named Fred Smith. Now, Fred Smith served tours of duty in Vietnam as Marine, your antenna should be perking there. He founded FedEx. Mm-hmm. And he was also a fraternity brother of George W. Bush in Skull and Bones. Ding. Uh, J. David Kuo 
was Value America's Senior Vice President of Communications, and he was also an evangelical Christian. He was also a CIA operative who worked throughout the 90s as a policy advisor for the Christian Coalition. Jerry Farwell, in fact, was known to visit Value America's offices and guide group prayer sessions. Um, and yeah, QO was also close to other evangelicals like Ralph Reed and Pat Robertson. And once Bush the Hunger was president, QO moved into the White House as deputy director for the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. Uh, what else have we got? So we've got a firm called Keo, uh, Keyhole even. The CIA invested in this to save it from bankruptcy. And this was just as the dot-com collapse really started to gather pace. This was a joint investment with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the NGA. This is an agency that has a focus on satellite-based intelligence collection, um, which they would then forward to the CIA and the Pentagon. Kiel software was integrated into US Army infrastructure, and it was used during Operation Iraqi Freedom which was the shock and awe campaign. They used it to get good targets for that. Uh, this is from Yasha Levine. Quote, intelligence officials were impressed with the video game-like simplicity of its virtual maps. The possibilities were limited only by what contextual data could be fed and grafted onto a map. Troop movements, weapons caches, real-time weather and ocean conditions, intercepted emails and phone call intel and mobile phone locations. What does that sound like, friends? And then in 2004, the same year Google went public, Brin and Page bought the company outright, CIA investors and all. Keyhole was reborn as Google Earth. And when Google bought Keyhole, it also acquired an Incutel executive named Rob Painter, who came with very deep connections to the world of intelligence and military contracting, including US special operations, the CIA, and major defense firms. Among them, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and Lockheed Martin. Norman Gustin, Incutel, Lockheed Martin, promise. It all connects. And so, yeah, then after 9-11, the, uh, the FAA, it partnered with um, a firm called Accenture and another one called HNC to pilot this new software program that sounds very similar to Promise and successor projects. Let's say that and be kind. Successor projects like Oracle and Matrix. Uh, this FAA project could analyze bank and credit card information, could cross-reference this against information held on other databases, and it used data mining algorithms to create a chart of a passenger's travel history, living arrangements, previous addresses, and compiled all of this into a profile that was then assigned a threat level. From the Washington Post, quote, Passengers with high threat indexes will be flagged as medium or high risks and will be taken aside for special searches and questioning. This is from the New York Times, quote, Our system will check your associates, Brett Ogilvie of Accenture told Businessweek. It will ask if you have made international phone calls to Afghanistan, taken flying lessons, or purchased £1,000 of fertilizer. The only problem? 
In order for the system to obtain answers to these questions, the nation's privacy laws will need to be relaxed. Federal laws currently restrict the personally identifiable information that the government can demand from credit card and phone companies, except as part of a specific investigation. Now, while all of this sounds very promise-like, remember, this is beginning to happen in the early 2000s. All of it now far exceeds Promise's capabilities. And we're talking about the tech that was available 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Now, Google alone demonstrates how simpatico the aims of big tech and intelligence agencies are. You know, profit motive and inflated security threats drive them both to devise ways to achieve total penetration and control of every part of society. Palantir, another good example of a firm like Google that works arm in arm with the security state and has a lot of tech that sounds suspiciously like promise. Now, yeah, examples like Keyhole, Google, Palantir, Oracle, they demonstrate how the worlds of like public and private intelligence and data mining have bled together and merged as the 21st century has progressed, you know, helped along by 9-11. Now, remember that quote from David Carney? He was ex-CIA brass. He was appointed to run Oracle's Information Assurance Center two months after 9-11. I'll just read you that quote again. How do you say this without sounding callous? In some ways, 9-11 made business a bit easier. Previous to 9-11, you pretty much had to hype the threat and the problem. So not only do the old enemies die, the old methods of control transform into something new in the 90s and up through the 2000s. Um, Tim Hurst, who's a pretty big wheel at Oracle, he also said this quote, you'll notice that we all become suspiciously quiet when we start talking about policy questions. At Oracle, we leave that to our customers to decide. We become a little stimid when we start talking about the should we's and the why's and the how's because it's not our expertise. What he's saying there basically is we are not accountable at all for the way that our technology is deployed or who it's used to spy on or anything like that. Um, and this increased privatization that the CIA, the NSA, and fucking every other Western security agency has engaged in these last two, three decades. This has led to massive expansion of their networks, which also means there's an increased diffusion of accountability. You can't point at any one person, remember? So yeah, as my boy uh, Benghazi has said, nothing can be free of control. Any territory that slips away, it has to be reconquered, man. We've got to bring that back into the fold. And I found a very strange um, story while I was putting this episode together that kind of feels you know, symbolic in some way, you know. So here we go. The word was a Silicon Alley web magazine right? And it was online from 1995 to 2000. And during that period of time, it was heavy on the utopianism and the optimism and the forward-facing quasi-religious fervor of that generation of startups, right? Now, it was bought out in 2000 and it was shut down. The company that bought it was Zapata Corporation. Zapata Corporation 
had at one time been known as Zapata Oil, which was George H.W. Bush's CIA front company for anti-Cuba operations. So right there in miniature, you see a brief window where people get a heady taste of a liberated online world. Then the old networks arrive to reassert control. And I'm sure I'll probably make this point again, and I think I may have made it already, but you would think that as part of this campaign of reconquest, the goal would be to lock off key information, you know, to shut down and censor the truth tellers and whatnot. But I mean, let's be real, man. The opposite is usually the case. I'm free to make this podcast and put it out there, as are any number of other people. We're all free to make our threads on Twitter, you know, in which we expose the man and draw the connections. And so you can think really far from closing off information. I think they realized very quickly that flooding us with it was a far more effective tactic. And it is true. You know, every day we are drowned in information and factoids and links and connections to chase. And the internet has this uncanny ability to flatten all data so that it's difficult to tell what information is actually important and what's safe to dismiss, you know what I mean? And this flood of information creates something like an unending present. We all chase the links and the connections endlessly. We're hamsters on a wheel, man. But we can never really do much with any of it other than post it or record it in podcast form, get a few approving responses, and then we all just kind of move on, you know? And yeah, while we're doing all this, we're doing our hamster wheel bit, they are watching everything, everything that we're doing. We're like the dreamer. Dreams, and then lives inside the dream. There were people on the dot-com scene who saw a lot of this coming. And one of the most fascinating figures from this period is Josh Harris. I'm going to level with you, okay? I'm going to give you the skinny right now. Josh Harris fucking personifies so many of the themes of this series. He's what you'd get. If you took Michael Riconosciuto and gave him VC financing, then swapped the meth cooking for weirdo art projects, um, just like Riconosciuto, he's part spook, he's part visionary, he's part bullshit artist as well. Um, his dad, Josh Harris's dad, he worked for the Ethiopian Livestock Development Company, Ilidka, right? Harris Sr., was a CIA agent. He was connected to Ted Shackley. Who else? Who else at this point? And anti-Cuban operations through him. Harris is sometimes described as the most important tech CEO you have never heard of. I mean, very few people have heard of this guy. Now, at the peak of his career in Silicon Alley in Manhattan, he was worth $50 million, which is a lot of money, but it seems incredibly quaint, you know, compared to someone like Elon Musk or fucking Jeff Bezos or somebody like that. Um, he was obsessed with the influence of media and technology on human psychology. And 
in referring to the way that TV had raised him and the influence of the early internet on his worldview, he told his biographer something very fucking interesting that I have not been able to get out of my head since I, I read it. He said, I've been programmed by someone else's dream. So in the late 80s, he founded this firm called Jupiter Communications, and this analyzed online traffic, you know, and wrote intelligence reports about them. Now, in researching this early online tech service called Minitel, I believe it was French, um, Josh realized the majority of users spent their time connecting to other people instead of using the service for what it had really been designed for, which was to shop or read the news or you know, something like that. This is from Andrew Smith, quote, his research backed his preternatural sense of how our virtual selves might evolve, of what we do with the deep blue space behind the screen. Through the Minitel, Josh had seen a different future opening up. He began the task of recruiting senior staff to replace him at Jupiter. So in 93, he founded Pseudo Programs. Uh, he took the name from the virtual IDs that people had adopted on the Minitel. Uh, they nicknamed these IDs Sudes or Pseudos. And then after this, he announced the launch of Pseudo by creating a computer animated video called Launder My Head that served as a kind of manifesto and a meta comment on how he figured the internet and other media was going to influence society, you know, in the 21st century. Conform with me. Conform with me. Conform with me. Launder my head. Launder my head. Launder, 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 launder my head. You turn me on. You make me live. You turn me on. You make me live. You turn me on. You make me live. Launder my head. Launder my head. Launder, 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 launder my head. I am your conscience. I am not conscious. I am your conscience. I am not your conscience. conscience. Now, Harris got the funding for Pseudo from Intel, mm -hmm, Tribune Media, and Prodigy. So, yeah, visionary pioneer of the current Panopticon, really. He said the internet would mean we would all live in public forever. And in 1999, he devised what he called a neo-fascist art project called Quiet, We Live in Public. And this was an Orwellian big brother concept that placed more than 100 artists in a human terrarium under New York City. And it had all these webcams following them and capturing every move the artist made. Cameras were also placed in all the sleeping pods as well and equipped with screens that allowed each occupant of a pod to monitor any of the other pods as well. Had a fully stocked armory and firing range. This is where things get even stranger, right? Because Josh hired Harold Kaufman, who's a CIA psychiatrist, to run interrogations of each participant. And this was part of a program 
of what Josh called Stasi-like intelligence collection. So Ashkan Sahihi, who was an Iranian photographer, he assisted in these interrogations. And before you could actually join the quiet experiment, you had to submit to a drugs test and full psych profile and give them your social security number. They also positioned the shooting range next to the interrogation room so that in interview subjects could hear gunfire while they were being interrogated. Uh, they stripped people naked out of their orange jumpsuits. They ordered them to strike poses. Uh, the, the Abu Ghraib parallels are fucking eerie, to be honest. Uh, Josh, in fact, said there was no need for money. Everything was free except for the video, which he earned, which is the internet, I guess. Um, and he also provided free food, booze, drugs, women, men, you name it. Heavy, heavy MK Ultra vibes. Um, and in my wilder moments, I sometimes wonder, was this some kind of MK Ultra experiment? to test the effects of what the internet was going to become. And people who spoke to the uh, the film crew that was following them around said, you know, the more you get to know each other, the more alone you actually become. One person said, I've begun to feel detached from myself, you know. And you have this, <laughs> yeah, you have this embodiment really of the Silicon Valley disruptor mindset, uh, which is, Bouge art pretensions meeting rapacious capitalist instincts. And funnily enough, that also applies to many of the CIA old boys. You know, they considered themselves temporarily frustrated poets and novelists and painters who were just knocking over countries while they got their manuscripts published. Everything old is new again, man. So after Quiet was shut down by the NYPD, there's a terrific documentary called We Live in Public about this guy. Highly recommend you seek it out. Yeah, after it was shut down, Harris then installed dozens of CCTV cameras uh, in his condo and he live streamed himself and his girlfriend 24 hours a day for about six months as another social experiment or art project. And this led basically to the breakdown of his relationship. Not really a surprise. Uh, but I guess by far the weirdest thing this very weird man did was front the money for an art collective called Gelatin and their project, which was called The Bee Thing. This was in 2000. Now, Gelatin drilled out a window on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center North Tower and they installed a balcony, and then they walked onto it naked, one after the other, while Harris filmed from a helicopter. They scheduled an exhibition for this event in New York City for September the 11th, 2001. I'm just going to let that percolate there for a moment or two. And then on the day of the attacks, uh, obviously the exhibition was cancelled, the CIA visited Harris and they assigned him a minder. And this has actually been confirmed by his friends from the time. And thereafter, Josh Harris says that he was placed under surveillance by the FBI. Um, once he went broke, uh, he opened an apple orchard and then he moved to Ethiopia where his dad had worked and he became the CEO of the African Entertainment Network. 
as you do. in thinking about all this and in thinking about the things we're about to discuss I keep returning to this idea of 9-11 as a kind of decoherence event because there's something about when the attacks happened you know, it's right at the beginning of the 21st century it's just as the internet is coming to dominate our lives and we're entering this hyper-mediated environment we are simply not equipped to handle let's be real Something about all that feels almost too perfect. Now, I think we should talk a bit about the operation's gravitational effect on history. You know, and I'm not just talking about the massive stuff like the Iraq War, the War on Terror. You know, uh, we're also trying to think about how 9/11 was actually weaponized against not just Americans but against us. You know, people in the West, people around the world in general. Um, and used to absolve and protect major players by creating the Hall of Accountability, as Pinchon called it. Now, footage of the planes hitting the towers was replayed over and over and over, you know, stoking hysteria and mass panic. Um, I remember, I believe it was in the Sun newspaper, there was this lengthy piece in there, and it was uh, interviews with firemen and what they'd seen as they were approaching the North Tower once the jumpers had started, you know, uh, diving out of the windows above. And even then, as a kid, I remember thinking, like, is all that really necessary? Do we need, like, three pages on this shit? Like, of what it looked like when they hit the ground and what the sound was like? And, you know, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, the whole thing, the way the media deployed the images, the footage of the day. To me, it feels like sometimes a psychological operation and it's one that had a deranging effect on society and politics, you know, and it's an effect we're still living with today, to be fair. People wanted blood, man, and they gave the Western uh, military apparatus a blank check to get the people we were told were responsible for it. And yet no questions were allowed to be asked that threatened the official narrative. You know, the event itself was so big and looms so large over everything else that nobody was allowed to talk about the strange Bush connections to the Saudis and, you know, from there to the hijackers. And I keep thinking about what they did with the Promise Affair and the information, the strangeness around that. And I can't help but think with 9-11, they multiplied that by a thousand, you know. They basically used that information overload we've been talking about and a captured internet and mass media to program people to get on board with the War on Terror project. And they also used it to obscure these dark, surreal aberrations before and after the event. And these were aberrations that... If they didn't 
punch holes in that official narrative, which some of them did. They raised questions anyway about what exactly the Western security state and its allies was really up to. Now, there are so many of these strange aberrations that we just do not have space to get into them all. But I think we can focus on the ones that are of particular relevance to the story that we've been telling. And what's important to remember before we begin here are two quotes. One was from Joe Burns, who is an assistant and advisor to Stephen Byers, the UK Labour government's transport secretary. Uh, She said to him, today is a good day to bury bad news. The other is from Timothy Glander and his book, Origins of Mass Communications Research During the American Cold War. He says this, quote, One cannot help but to notice that many of the known MKUltra projects had little to do with the control of individuals and much to do with finding ways to control and manage the thinking and behaviours of large social groups. John Gittinger, a CIA psychologist and major figure in its MKUltra program, argued that the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology was established to undertake research in the general area of the behavioural sciences. It definitely had almost no focus or interest in, say, drug-related activities, except in a very minor way, because it was set up to attempt to gain a certain amount of information and to fund projects that were psychological, sociological, or anthropological in nature. Untold thousands of disinformation agents were probably turned loose in the aftermath of 9-11. Some of them were freelance true believers who thought they really did see those planes glitching just before impact, you know. Some of them were knowing accomplices. They were financed by key suspects, major players in the octopus story, in fact. And they effectively created and shaped the 9-11 truth movement from the beginning. The rest of the agents were mainstream reporters who just didn't want to ask the hard questions. One of these financiers was none other than Adnan Khashoggi. Now, Daniel Hopsecker reported way back in 2004 that Khashoggi and Rami El Batrawi, who was a Saudi-American businessman, had partnered on a venture called GenesisIntermedia.com. And that was used in part to spread disinformation around 9-11 muddying the waters, you know, mystifying links between key players. Genesis Intermedia earners would later be exposed for manipulating the stock price of this company. Now, weirdly, John Gray, who's the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, he marketed his dietary supplements and self-help literature through Genesis Intermedia. John Gray provided seed funding to the 9-11 Truth Movement and the Toronto 9-11 inquiry. And in reading through archived reports from the time, again and again, you see the same story. You know, you'll have a group of concerned citizens who will form some kind of ad hoc 9-11 truth group. They'll start doing some pretty good, honest work, you know. Then the Khashoggi Gray network gets involved. Suddenly, when they hold meetings, people appear wanting to talk about hologram planes, how the Jews did 9-11, missiles stripped to the underside of the planes, and so on and so forth. What they did, I think, 
is they planted these tiny seeds of crazy and very quickly spreading through the internet. It came to dominate what we popularly think of as the 9-11 truther, you know. And by the time this stuff hit the mainstream, it was easy for sensible journalists to dismiss everything out of hand, the good and the bad, without concerning themselves too much about who the fuck is paying for this shit, you know, who's giving these people the initial platform. Now, this reminds me so much of what happened with the Inslaw story, that it's eerie. You know, you'd think they'd, like we said, lock the good information off from the bad, but what they do instead is the opposite. They recognize and they understand the benefits of the internet's flattening effect on data and information. So everything was hung out there. I remember when we first got the internet, man, I'm going back now. We were quite late adopters. I think it was like 2002, 2003. I, I would be trolling forums and uh, once I was normal and I wasn't interested in um, these, these types of subjects, but I just gradually sort of started reading more and more about 9-11. Back in those days, because it was like the Wild West, they hadn't scrubbed all the 9-11 truth stuff as well as they have now, you know. And you could find these forums that had discussions about you know, very sensible discussions about the links to the Bush Network and Safari Club and BCCI and the CIA and Saudi government and so on. But that stuff would be jostling for attention next to people who reckoned they could see orbs floating in the blue sky above the towers or spread bullshit about Jewish World Trade Center staff calling in sick on the day or randomly shared like raw footage of jumpers hitting the World Trade Center Plaza, you know, just to keep that fucking terror amped up. And this helps saturate the entire story in white noise. And so what we're about to discuss really is hard to find much follow-up on in the archives of mainstream outlets once you get beyond 2002 or so because such a massive scrub job was eventually done. But this stuff has always stuck with me. We're talking years and years now. It's stuff I still think about randomly. And I'm not saying I have particularly good explanations for a lot of it, but all I can tell you is this stuff happened because it was verified by other people before it became <laughs> impolite to verify these kinds of things. And yeah, these stories, just like Promise and Connected Crimes, they were kind of dispersed to the margins, quietly memory-hulled, or smeared into the, the whacked-out disinformation about energy beams melting the towers and demons appearing in the smoke from the fires and so on. The sign our state is declining. The homeless we no longer support and have grown used to not thinking about as we step across them towards our ATMs. What Sallust and Arnold discerned in Rome and Victorian London. Privatim opulentia, publicae agestas, until the Republic is suborned. By these forces we cannot see, for which the intellectual price is a shrinkage of our culture towards the trivialities of narcotic distractions, suburban poets, and expansion of our costly empire. Thanks to facilitations from Al-Qaeda, until now, there are American troops 
from Kyrgyzstan, Georgia to Kosovo. September 1st, 1996, right? So the cops in Fairfax County in Virginia, they found um, a guy called Paul Gabelia's body in the trunk of a burned, but not burned out, um, 1991 Mercury sedan. His legs were tied with wire and a jumper cable was cinched around his throat. Now the medical examiner said that the cause of death was strangulation, right? And the cops traced the car, confirming that it was, you know, Gabelia's. And when they spoke to his wife, she explained that the day he died, he'd left home to close a deal with a couple of businessmen who may have been from Syria or, as she said, somewhere else in the Middle East. Now, these guys had contacted him out of the blue and... He was a little bit nervous about how they got hold of his name and phone number. But Gabelia was desperate. I mean, he was $100,000 in debt to his credit card company. And he had other bills mounting up as well. So anyway, in the event, a friend of his supplied copies of Gabelia's papers to the police, you know. And it turned out that he drafted a limited partnership agreement. And it seemed pretty clear he was intending to help these two guys stash money and other assets in the Cayman Islands in exchange for a kickback. Um, the company that he was working with was apparently called ARC Limited, A-R-C Limited. His wife told the cops he'd begun to have more and more reservations about the deal and he was planning to confront his new partners about where their money was coming from, exactly. And they'd scheduled a meeting at Dulles Airport. Now, in the end, the cops couldn't find any evidence these guys even existed. And they couldn't find a company called Arc Limited either. Uh, they were content then to, yeah, write the death off as a very bizarre suicide, physical evidence notwithstanding. And that was apparently that. But then a few years later, Gabriel's wife was involved in a lawsuit with one of her husband's life insurance companies. And her attorney, uh, Walter Dix, found a very interesting story in the Wall Street Journal. And it discussed an organization based in Britain run by one of Osama bin Laden's key guys, Khalid al-Fawaz. Now, Al-Fawaz had set up an Al-Qaeda front called the Advice and Reform Committee, or ARC. And this was apparently part of a drive to persuade the British government to grant Osama bin Laden asylum in the UK. Uh, his signature was all over ARC documents. This is where things get stranger, right? So a British businessman called Philip Lumsden also ran a company called Arc Limited, but this was spelt with a Q, not a C. Arc with a Q was a web design firm, and Lumsden was on very friendly terms with the Saudi Bin Laden Group, which is the construction firm that Osama's dad founded. The Saudi Bin Laden Group commissioned Paul Lumsden to use Arc Limited to host SaudiBinLadenGroup.com on ARC's web server. 
It went up in September of 2000 and it expired on September the 11th, 2001. Now I need to stress here, there is no evidence at all that Lumsden was a participant in the 9-11 plot or that he had any foreknowledge of the attacks. He was paid to build a website and he built the website. That's it. But the theory is that this web page was used to facilitate communication between different hijackers. And Gabelia may have unwittingly agreed to act as a point man on some kind of Al-Qaeda money laundering scheme connected to this operation. So his lawyers, his family lawyer's theory was if he was writing down uh, the names of companies and whatnot as he heard them, you know, phonetically, that may explain why he spelled Ark Limited with a C instead of a Q. Now, this idea that the Al-Qaeda network was using websites to communicate plans, that's been around for a while, right? Uh, CNS News reported that in the year leading up to 9-11, the following domain names were also registered and most of them were abruptly taken offline on or just after the attacks. Okay, here we go. Attackamerica.com, attackonamerica.com, attackontwintowers.com, August 11 horror.com, August 11 terror.com. Maybe they changed the day, you know. Horrorinamerica.com, horrorinnewyork.com, nycterroriststrike.com, pearlharborinmanhattan.com, terrorattack2001.com, towerofhorror.com, tradetowerstrike.com, World Trade Center 929, World Trade Center bombs, World Trade Tower attacks, World Trade Tower strike, World Trade, oh wait, no, sorry, terrorist attack 2001. Dot com. So this is one of many frustrating unknowns, right? This could be something meaningful or it could be a total dead end, but nobody ever chased it up, which is a recurring theme in this series. And as a result, it was kind of absorbed into and disintegrated by the internet, which made it easy for, you know, fact checkers and debunkers to kind of ooze content over this kind of thing 20 years after the fact. Anyway, through the winter of 2000 and 2001, he had these reports beginning to appear from DEA field offices about a series of very odd fucking encounters with Israeli kids who were trying to sell them crappy art or invite them to random art exhibitions. These kids would come right into the, the field offices. Now, before too long, these um, art students... They also started appearing at ATF, FBI, Secret Service, Air Force, and U.S. Marshals offices as well. And they always traveled in groups of four with three students and a driver. And they said they were students at the Bezalel Academy of Art and Design in Jerusalem or the University of Jerusalem, which didn't exist. Now, the female art students were what um, the American male may call baddies or even dimes from time to time, you know. And they would flirt with field agents while they shifted the conversation from art to info about security procedures and investigations and so on. Some of these students were trying to access secure areas, you know, they would 
caught drawing diagrams of offices and eventually they started visiting some agents at their homes out of the blue trying to sell them art. A few of them were arrested and it turned out they had these fake work-study visas and green cards. Uh, one kid had bank records in his rucksack that showed $200,000 in withdrawals and deposits that had been made over a period of two months. This is fucking weird, right? But weirder still was how these kids even knew where these offices were located and where these specific agents worked and lived and given this stuff is it's kept fairly secret you know they don't exactly advertise where every single DEA field office is uh, FBI office or whatever now I do have a theory you know about this 22 year mystery or at least this part of it the reason they knew where these offices were and where the agents live I'm going to hazard a guess and say I think they may have been using promise right so throughout 2001, and especially after 9-11, the US government did end up rounding up and deporting about 200 suspected Israeli spies. So could these art students have been connected? Well, we'll probably never know. Because, you know, while some journalists did start digging into the story, the Washington Post and the New York Times mobilized to debunk the, uh, the narrative by quoting Bush admin officials who dismissed the stories as urban myths, you know. But this doesn't matter because a 60-page DEA report was leaked shortly before this PR uh, campaign, and it compiled dozens and dozens of eyewitness reports from field agents of Israeli art students visiting secure government offices and trying to access areas that were off limits. Sure enough, Mainstream outlets just declined to follow this up. Now, Fox News had been planning to run a long-form series on the story, and then they abruptly scrubbed all trace of it from their website. I mean, they'd already broadcast some TV segments, is my understanding, but when uh, the French paper Le Monde asked for backup tapes or copies of these segments, Fox said that they couldn't find them. I believe the exact words from the spokesman was... Um, that will be a problem for us, something like that. So yeah, there's been speculation that the art students were financing whatever this operation was off the back of ecstasy deals. Uh, by 2001, Israeli ecstasy dominated the market in the States, and some feds have speculated that the operation was deliberately sloppy, and it deliberately made a lot of noise to obscure something darker. This is from Christopher Ketchum, quote, more than one-third of the students who were spread out in 42 cities lived in Florida, several in Hollywood and Fort Lauderdale, one time home to at least 10 of the 19 September 11th hijackers. In at least one case, the students lived just a stone's throw from homes and apartments where the hijackers resided. In Hollywood, several students lived at 4220 Sheridan Street, just down the block from the 3389 Sheridan Street apartment where terrorist mastermind Mohammed Atta holed up with three other September 11th plotters. Many of the students, the DEA report noted, had backgrounds in Israeli military intelligence and or electronic surveillance. Uh, one was the son of a two-star Israeli general, and another had served as a bodyguard to the head of the Israeli army. The thinking is that this network was keeping tabs 
um, at least in part, on the 9-11 hijackers, but for what purposes, nobody really knows. And then when Salon went to follow up on this story, uh, I think it was around 2004 or so, they were hit with a wall of omerta from higher-ups at different agencies and other media uh, people who briefly investigated this. Nobody, nobody wanted to touch this thing. Um, and it was made clear that talking to a reporter about it, made clear to the agents, that is, it was made clear that talking to reporters about this would be hazardous to their career prospects. I am aware that people hear the word Israelis used in connection to 9-11 and immediately, you know, they see red flags and, and hear alarms. So I'm not going to judge you if you're getting ready to duck out here, if you're getting a little antsy. A good one is that as the towers were burning, a woman in New Jersey reported seeing a group of five men sitting on the roof of a van filming the towers looking very happy with themselves. And she reported it to the cops and gave them uh, the license plate number of the van. And this is from the uh, Herald, Scottish newspaper, quote, by 4 p.m. on the afternoon of September 11th, the van was spotted near New Jersey's giant stadium. A squad car pulled it over and inside were five men in their 20s. They were hustled out of the car with guns leveled at their heads and handcuffed. In the car was $4,700 in cash, a couple of foreign passports, and a pair of box cutters. There were also fresh pictures of the men standing with the smouldering wreckage of the Twin Towers in the background. One image showed a hand flicking a lighter in front of the devastated buildings like a fan at a pop concert. The driver of the van then told the arresting officers, We are Israeli. We are not your problem. Your problems are our problems. The Palestinians are the problem. Now, these guys were listed as working for a firm called Urban Moving in New Jersey, and it was owned by another Israeli called Dominic Otto Suter. But after an initial search of his warehouse, he disappeared when the feds returned to interview him. Harold again. Vincent Canestraro, former chief of operations for counterterrorism with the CIA, says the red flag went up among investigators when it was discovered that some of the Israelis' names were found in a search of the National Intelligence Database. Canestraro says many in the US intelligence community believed that some of the Israelis were working for Mossad, and there was speculation over whether urban moving had been set up or exploited for the purpose of launching an intelligence operation against radical Islamists. Uh, these five guys were Sivan Kersberg, uh, Paul Kersberg, his brother, Yaron Shmuel, Oded Elner, and Omer Mameri. And while they were detained, they refused to take polygraph tests, and they admitted that at one time they had worked for Israeli intelligence, but they were quick to assure the, uh, the feds only in other countries, you know. Uh, the FBI only released some heavily redacted documents about this in 2005. And there's another strange event that happened not long after 9-11, when two Israeli intelligence agents, uh, Saar Noam Ben Zvi and Salvador Gerson Schmeck, attacked the fucking Mexican Legislative Assembly on the 10th of October 2001. They were carrying uh, Pakistani passports, guns. I believe they were two... Um, Glocks, nine millimeters. They had nine hand grenades between them, dynamite detonators as well. But before they could actually do anything, they were surrounded and arrested. And then while they were being held, 
the Israeli embassy aggressively intervened to have them both released on bail and flown back to Israel. Again, total blackout, zero follow-up, nothing more was ever really discovered about what the fuck was going on here, but the timing is interesting. Do you know what I mean? So we mentioned before that in early 2001, uh, Michael Reconosciuto had been frantically trying to warn the FBI that he picked up underworld rumors of an impending attack, possibly on New York City. But when the feds visited him in prison, they threatened him with arrest for wasting their time, and then he was placed in solitary after this. Uh, Michael Springman, he was a pretty low-level bureaucrat who worked in the U.S. consulate in Jeddah. He later came forward and said that between 1987 and 1989, he'd been pressured by senior staff to issue visas to people who were on terrorism watch lists, and he was fired for speaking publicly. Springman is another guy who has since drifted to the right um, in the years since. Now, cut to 11 years later, and at the same consulate, Shana Steiner uh, arrived to begin work for the Foreign Office in July of 2000. She clashed repeatedly with a colleague of hers called David L. Hinn because L. Hinn was very, very fucking nervous about how many Saudis with suspicious backgrounds and shady links to Al-Qaeda she kept issuing visas to. Then through September and October of 2000, she issued visas to 12 of the 9-11 hijackers. And these guys... Uh, were far from model applicants as well. They'd given vague, evasive answers to simple questions about where they were going in the States, what they planned to do when they got there, or they'd omitted information or lied straight up, you know, dates of birth, names, addresses, that kind of thing. They made very little fucking effort to even appear like they were on the level. And yet again and again, she kept giving them green lights, you know, and then rather than being reprimanded, after 9-11, she was actually promoted and she worked for the Department of State all the way up to 2020. And then we have the big one. We have insider trading. Um, so there was a rise in put options uh, being placed on United and American Airlines as well as businesses located at the World Trade Center site. This is pretty well established now. I think it's fairly inarguable. Um, a put option is essentially, it's a bet that a stock is going to crash, you know, and if it does, you collect. Now, the 9-11 Commission was extremely reluctant to investigate this angle. And when they did, they dismissed the entire line of inquiry out of hand because they could find no direct link to Al-Qaeda. Uh, they discussed one series of trades and dismissed this because the trader could have no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda. That was the uh, criteria. If we can't prove it within one link or something, we're not even going to bother like investigating. And this naturally goes through the media churn and it's used by mainstream journalists as proof that there was never anything to look into there. Uh, and what's more, the records the 9-11 Commission used to prove there was no suspicious financial activity before 9-11 why they were conveniently destroyed by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission when a journalist called David Callahan submitted a FOIA request uh, to access them. So the commission's conclusions are based on evidence that doesn't exist. Did it ever exist? And then the German Central Bank investigated and Ernst Weltek, uh, the 
bank president, he said, quote, what we found makes us sure that people connected to the terrorists must have been trying to profit from this tragedy. Besides massive short selling of airlines and insurance stocks, there was a fundamentally inexplicable rise in world oil prices just before the attacks that suggest certain groups or people were buying oil contracts that were then sold for a much higher price. We also detected movements in gold markets, which were also alarming. If you look at stock movement before and after the attacks, it makes your brow furrow. There was a guy called Alan uh, Pateshman at the University of Illinois. He wrote a peer-reviewed analysis of this trading activity. And his conclusion was that the pattern of trading was consistent with insider knowledge of the attacks. There's, you know, there's no way you could have made those specific trades without knowing what was going to happen. Now, those trades that could have had no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda, you know, according to the 9-11 Commission, they were made through Alex Brown, which had been bought by Deutsche Bank in 1999. Alex Brown's chief executive officer was Buzzy Krongard of CIA and Incutel fame, who became executive director of the CIA in March 2001, appointed by none other than George Tennant. Come on. Come on. I'm loath to ever recommend my wonderful listeners go to Wikipedia, but in this instance, do go to Wikipedia and have a look at what an absolute fucking mess Buzzy Krongard's pages. There are dates and places of employment mentioned all out of sequence, are left very vague and hard to pass. There's no mention at all of the Alex Brown 9-11 connection, no mention at all of the insider trading or anything. And one can't help but think that this feels like it's by design. So a data retrieval firm from Britain called Conva was hired to restore data from hard drives found in the World Trade Center rubble, you know, banking hard drives. And by December 2001, they'd retrieved enough information to make them extremely suspicious that not only was the insider trading legit, that it had actually happened, but as much as $100 million in shady financial transactions was rushed through the systems of places like Deutsche Bank in the chaos of the attacks. And they passed this information on to the FBI, who did exactly fuck all with it. And then speaking of uh, shady financial transactions, Mahmoud Ahmed, who is the director of Pakistan's intelligence agency, the ISI, he wired $100,000 to Mohammed Atta just before 9-11. And as a sense you get in reading through the accounts of the months leading up to 9-11, that pieces were being moved into place. You know, assets were being deployed, plans were being laid. And if we're saying that 9-11 was at the very least allowed to happen, then of particular relevance to us when we're thinking about how these various pieces may have been shuffled around the board, of particular relevance is promise. Because promise haunts the entire fucking story of 9-11. Uh, P-Tech, the software firm we've discussed before, was, at least according to Indira Singh, based largely on the Promise software, and the firm itself was a front for um, 
an element of the Iran-Contra network. It also held contracts with every major U.S. government agency. You know, it even did work for the FAA. It was perfectly placed to monitor events on the day as they unfolded. Similarly, we can prove the insider trading and the money being wired to various hijackers and field agents was being ignored because both the NSA and the CIA used a promise to monitor financial markets. Uh, they used it to watch Fedwire and SWIFT as well. It was supposed to flag suspicious transactions like unusually large amounts of money being sent from one person of interest to another. And yet, we're to believe that somehow they missed the head of the ISI sending $100,000 to the lead 9-11 hijacker, you know. So we know Promise was still being used by the Bush Jr. administration after 9-11 at the height of the war on terror because we know they reactivated the continuity of government planning operations. And as part of this, they started building up the main card database subversive list again. And this is while Bush was making speeches like, you know, they hate us for our freedom and shit, which I don't know why, but a lot of his rhetoric echoes Jim Jones's own, you know, if you're not getting persecuted, you're not living godly shtick that he used to come out with in the 60s and 70s. So Bill Hamilton says that around 2007, he started hearing from his sources, guys like Admiral Dan Murphy, that not only was Main Corps once again collecting names, but they were using promise to manage and administer it. And when you factor in the huge expansion in the surveillance state's capabilities after 9-11, you have to assume the new database dwarfed anything uh, that the enterprise had been building back in the 80s. And this is from Tim Shorrock, quote, Salon has learned of a high-level former national security official who reportedly has first-hand knowledge of the U.S. government's use of main car. The official works as a senior intelligence analyst for a large domestic law enforcement agency inside the Bush White House. He would not agree to an interview. But according to the former Justice Department official, the former intelligence analyst told her that while stationed at the White House after the 9-11 attacks, one day he accidentally walked into a restricted room he came across a computer system that was logged on to what he recognized to be the main car database. When she mentioned the specific name of the top secret system during their conversation, she recalled he turned white as a sheet. And then on top of this, uh, Norman Bailey, who was a financial consultant who worked for both the Reagan and both Bush administrations, he said the NSA had been using Promise for almost 20 years by the time the towers were destroyed and that they were still using it after that. And so here we are, the magic moment, 9-11. I'd initially planned to diagram where all the major players of the octopus story were on the day itself. But yeah, I decided to just settle on a few that feel especially noteworthy. So you have George W. Bush. He's at a school in Florida. He'd spent the night at the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort. Earlier that day, around dawn, he got ready to go out for a jog. Uh, after he left, a group of Middle Eastern men arrive at the resort and they asked to speak to him and they were turned away. And no follow-up 
was made on who they were or if this was some kind of botched hit job or something. You've got Poppy Bush, he's attending the 2001 Carlisle Investors Conference and also in attendance is Shafiq Bin Laden, one of Osama's brothers. You have Bob Graham, Porter Goss and Mahmoud Ahmed meeting for breakfast at the US Capitol building. You got Rumsfeld holding a meeting at the Pentagon with key officials and at this meeting Rumsfeld says that very soon an event will occur that will be sufficiently shocking to remind people again how important it is to have a strong, healthy defense department. Then you've got Dick Cheney. He's in a meeting with Sean O'Keefe as the attacks begin. Both of them later say they couldn't remember anything they discussed. Uh, David Kuo described Cheney that morning as like an absent-minded professor, deep in thought and oblivious to the world. This was before the attacks began. Around 8.55 DC, people start having these very strange issues trying to use their cell phones. The problem even extends to secure lines at the White House, the Pentagon, and the Capitol building. And what happened to the Speaker of the House, uh, Dennis Hastert, that morning? That seems to sum up so much of the obscure weirdness around this day that we've been, we've really only managed to scratch the surface of it tonight. He's in his office in the US Capitol building. And he later said, you know, to use the secure phone, you have to push a button and turn a key. On that dreadful day, I couldn't make the thing work. No matter what I did, I couldn't connect with the vice president. As the minutes passed, my frustrations grew. So just after the Pentagon gets hit, he finally starts getting calls on his regular line. But when he answers them, it's an unknown man over and over who keeps saying, I can't get a hold of Jeb Bush. I can't get a hold of the president. I can't get a hold of Colin Powell. All this stuff is happening. What are you guys doing? It's all too much, man. Like, it just piles up. It's just one bizarre and baffling story after another. So I think, again, we have to step back, take the breath. And we have to remember that the best way to understand 9-11 is as yet another product possibly a project, of the activities of the same network that connected to BCCI, to the anti-Soviet operations in Afghanistan, to Iran-Contra, to Nugent Hand, to Watergate, all the way back to Dallas. This network is the real octopus. And it wasn't just managed violence and the forever war. That they were responsible for either, you know, as we've seen with its connections to the savings and loan crisis, the dot-com boom, the goddamn fucking Enron scandal, which is technically an octopus joint, but it's just one we do not have the time to get into, you know, maybe maybe later in the show's run. Uh, and then you look at the, the deregulatory policies that led to, you know, the Great Recession and this age of permanent austerity that we're all living through. These fuckers have a very obvious financial project too, you know, and it can essentially be understood as massive precarity and instability for the rest of us and just vast unchecked wealth accumulation and power for them. And I feel like when Bush gave that speech the night of 9-11, you know, the one where he said that although America was at war and the economy was in recession, the state of the union had never been stronger, blah, blah, blah. I think in a real sense, he was telling the truth 
It's just the question of which union exactly you think he was referring to. To heal this world, we must become intimate with it. But the search for political truth will lead one deeper and deeper into falsehood. So we all become like the good Germans, not thinking about who caused the Ragstack fire or the hundreds of people we do not know taken off to secret camps or distant countries. It is a dilemma. Part of me needs to agree with the left that we have to wake up America, that it is knowledge that will make us free. The idea being that truth unites us in thinking together, even though these truths of darkness have been known to destroy. Those who have published them and I, myself, can share with no one, except those who, like myself, have become distanced from the crowd. From the glories of the Tang Dynasty, I recall only one date, the year of the usurper, and Lu Shan, who drove both Wang Wei and Du Fu far from the corrupt court into the mountains, where for the first time they were free to write the only poems we remember. I thought I'd close out here with two quotes that I feel sum up the journey we've been on and the journey we are about to conclude. This is from a 2002 New York Times article. After September the 11th, the Consumer Electronics Show organizers decided to sponsor a special exhibition hall at the Riviera Hotel for technologies that are especially well suited to homeland defense. That old familiar goldrush feeling was in the air at the Riviera. One speaker estimated that federal spending on security technologies would grow by 30% a year, rising to $62 billion by 2006. God bless America, read the PowerPoint slide over an image of firefighters raising the flag. In the buzzing exhibition hall, participants admired a hologram of the Statue of Liberty, as well as a man in a gigantic thumbprint costume who'd been hired by a company called Digital Persona to advertise its fingerprint recognition device. And I think given the themes of this episode and the Octopus series in general, we may as well wrap up with this quote from the man himself, Thomas Pynchon. Quote, After the 11th of September attack, amid all that chaos and confusion, a hole quietly opened up in American history, a vacuum of accountability into which assets, human and financial, began to vanish. Back in the days of hippie simplicity, people like to blame the CIA or a secret rogue operation. But this is a new enemy. Unnameable. Locatable on no organization chart or budget line. And who knows? Maybe even the CIA is scared of them.
Stuart, where are you right now? I'm working at a restaurant in Soho. All right, so tell us what you saw, if you would. I literally, I was waiting at a table, and I literally saw a, it seemed to be like a small plane. I just heard a couple noises. It looked like it, like, bounced off the building, and then I heard a, I just saw a huge, like, ball of fire on top. And then the smoke seemed to simmer down, and it just, um, you know, a lot of smoke was coming out, and that's pretty much the extent of what I saw. A private aircraft? It, I'm not sure. I'm about four or five blocks just north of the World Trade Center. And uh, at about 10, I would say 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, there was a loud sound that I, I can only describe as it sounded like a missile, not an airplane. Then there was a loud explosion and immediately lots of screaming out on the streets. Uh, and I don't want to cause any speculation, but that's the only way I could describe the sound. And it, and it was definitely not the sound of a prop plane or anything like that. And am I right? Are you a pilot? Well, I have flown. I do not have a pilot's license. But I, I grew up on military bases, and I know the sound of jets, and, and I've been in war zones and, and heard those kinds of different sounds. So, again, not to cause any kind of undue speculation, but the sound itself was not of a prop plane. It was perhaps a jet, but it could have been a missile as well. Right, and as you pointed out in the closer shot, you could see the flames there. Let's can we listen in to see what this woman is saying here for a second? It was inside. Because it looked out, everything was coming out. Everything all the windows out. were coming out, all the papers were What is on the sidewalk? I didn't see anything. Were there any people hurt, do you know? Ran, and everyone in the past few years ran. I don't know if anyone was hurt, but I assume they were because the windows were all blown out. Right, thank you. Well, you would have to assume uh, a very, very terrible situation if that is the case, because I'm sure it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Right, right oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right, oh my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. My God, it's right in the middle of the building. This one into the east top. Yes. Yes. Right in the middle of the building. As just I didn't see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. I just saw another plane coming in from the side. Okay, so that's the second explosion. You can see the plane. The two towers, a huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. secret bank accounts and diverted funds. What if the Navy would say, this happened on my watch? I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Mr. Dulles, would you approve Congressman Lindsay's uh, suggestion of a watchdog congressional committee over the CIA? Well, I do not uh, favor it, but I think that is a matter for the Congress and the President uh, to decide primarily. We took this country 
I'll never apologize for the United States of America, ever. I don't care what the facts are. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. It's very hard to get lost in America these days, and it's harder to stay lost. He took Africans from their country to build our way of ease and kept them enslaved and living in fear. Terrorism. I've come to the conclusion after all these years that there probably doesn't need to be a CIA. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. We bombed Grenada and killed innocent civilians, babies, non-military personnel. We bombed the black civilian community of Panama with stealth bombers and killed unarmed teenagers and toddlers, pregnant mothers and hardworking fathers. We bombed Gaddafi's home and killed his child. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy. We have some claims that stay quiet and it'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. I'm scared to close my eyes. <laughs> inside waiting to go upstairs and on the way upstairs the whole fucking thing blew and we just we just collapsed and everybody inside the lobby similar to the first tower coming down secondary i don't know about the first one but i know the second was it was terrible then it was a third one too after that one yes
tonight, our nation is at war, our economy is in recession, and the civilized world faces unprecedented dangers. Yet the state of our union has never been stronger. Cry. 